Hello and welcome to the first of many, many episodes to come in Normandy FM Dragon Age Inquisition Edition. Oh my lord, Ken, we're finally here. We're on the last game. Well, the last Dragon Age game. Uh, we're not, yeah. not on the last game game. But, um, yeah, we're, we're here. This is the one that we have been building up to for some time, I feel, because as large as Origins was with, uh, with Awakening tacked on, and as long as the DA2 season went, which was really, like, not that long in retrospect, like, mm-hmm. it kind of breezed by now that I think about it, uh, Inquisition can, first of all, you, Kenneth Shepard, lied to me, Eric Van Allen, about how big Inquisition is. Because you've been sitting here for ages being like, it's not that big. You don't need to do much. I've already hit the point in the game where I'm like, oh, right, I got to go do stuff to get power so I can open up another area so I can do stuff there to get power so I can open up another area. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't feel particularly big to me. Maybe I'm just... My... Like, what I consider big might just be different because I am, like... Well, I mean, when it comes to open world games, like some, I think more along like the lines of a continuous world is where my brain thinks when I think of things that are like too big, too expansive, and all that stuff. Where Inquisition just isn't that, so it doesn't register in my brain the same way. I think so. One of the most important things that we'll set out. Okay, so for everyone at home, this is our first episode about Dragon Age Inquisition. Uh, we are going to be covering this game. All the way through December of this. I mean, basically the rest of 2020, we will be talking about Dragon Age Inquisition every week here on Normandy FM. Uh, and the weird thing about covering this game, covering, like, criticizing, analyzing, like, doing this sort of recap every week, is that Inquisition is structurally a very different game from, I think, most other Bioware games with the exception of Andromeda, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And because of that, it it requires a little bit more, let's say, flexibility in mm-hmm. how we talk about this game. Um, so there, there's, like, a massive amount of content in this game. Like, just the sheer breadth of it is almost impossible to try and, like, dissect in any meaningful way. And also a lot of it is very, like... <sighs> I don't mean to, for this to sound derogatory, but it is, like, surface level. Um, like, mm-hmm. I mentioned in a previous week that I was playing in the Hinterlands, and there was, like, a fun little quest where I came across a scout who was all worried about his missing partner. And I found the partner, and they were hanging up on a, hanging on a mountaintop with uh, an apostate, and they had been attacked by some Templars and stuff like that. So we helped them kill the Templars, and we talked to the scout, and we were like, oh, you were having a secret rendezvous with your apostate mage pal and you didn't want your partner to find out and get you in trouble and now we the not quite inquisitor yet but still part of the inquisition are here and you kind of have a choice of whether you're going to turn them in or whether you're just going to be cool with it or not um and those are all like well and good and i think they're they're fine but they kind of feel just very 
the best ones feel just serviceable in a way that's like okay cool mm-hmm. they put some story around me doing a thing and then other ones are just straight up like okay go kill five of these animals and bring back the pelts so that way we can like have blankets again <laughs> and those are a little bit more uh just filler yeah but like in a way that not even andromeda had like and it feels weird because andromeda came out after inquisition i feel like part of the things that were not in andromeda were missions like that i I felt Mm -hmm. like i did not run into quests that were like that very often compared to how often i'm running into them here with inquisition Mm. um but the other aspect is just that like this is such a massive open world and then there's like another layer of metagame on top of it with unlocking different areas and the power and the advisors and the inquisition perks and the holds like the keeps that you can acquire over the course of the game and things like that there's just it's a very dense game in a way Mm -hmm. that i don't think any bioware game has been uh to the point that it's like i i can't believe that this is what they like if you were just to solely go from dragon age 2 to this it is so night and day like going from that Mm -hmm. small scale very focused story to like we are telling the grandest epic in the world (laughs) um but i will say so far i am enjoying my time with it um Mm. and if yeah yeah if i can just give everybody like everyone that's listening if you've never played this game before, or if you have, and you like, maybe it's been a while. The best advice I can give with this game is to critical path it, and that because I think in similar ways that we talk about with Andromeda, like the bulk of this game and just like the sheer amount of stuff in it, I feel like detracts from what I think is at its core, like still a very singular Bioware story, and uh, you know, with with the same missions and characters and. So the the format of those old older games just it's surrounded by a lot of time wasting open world bullshit uh, where and, and I think that has been that has been to the game's detriment in the long term because I think a lot of people remember that sort of you know that glut that um, surrounds all the actual good stuff and mm-hmm. I think if you if you want to take the take away you know the best parts of this game i think playing it as much like a more uh traditional bioware game as you can will really help you in the long run and to like if you're playing it specifically to play along with the show we have tried to format the season to accommodate that as best we can um Mm -hmm. we might run into some setbacks on that eventually i don't think we will i think we kind of learned from andromeda and kind of like where the format didn't work in the, the way we wanted it to um so yeah, just kind of like, don't feel obligated to exist in every corner of this universe, uh, because I don't think it's as rewarding as just kind of like sticking to the parts that matter. I mean, the the handiest part about all this is that I think one of, and we, we actually talked about this, I think after we recorded last week, uh, was that Andromeda, you knew what you were getting into because you had played Andromeda several mm-hmm. times. Uh, I had I had not ever finished a single playthrough of Andromeda. And so in that case, it was this awkward situation where 
I was kind of experiencing a game for the first time and you were playing a game that you played a lot of times and it was a little bit more of like a guided tour of Eric <laughs> through Mass Effect <laughs> Andromeda whereas like I've played Dragon Age Inquisition all the way through and I think my first playthrough was somewhere in like the 65 to 70 hour range so I spent a mm. lot of time with it um, and that's all that is just like if you're hearing that number and being kind of like intimidated by it that is also like with to some extent like you did really engage with the side stuff because I think if you do like sort of critical path it or at least Bioware Critical Path that you can get through this game in around 30 to 40 hours. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it's. I'd still say that's pretty meaty for a game these days. Um, for sure. But it's it's a mount that is like a little bit more. It's closer to the hour counts that you would get out of a Mass Effect or like a Dragon yeah. Age 2. Like, I think my Dragon Age 2 playthrough was ultimately like 30 hours, I want to say. And that was mm. with us doing all the different side quests and stuff like that. I think I 100%ed dragon age 2 by the time i was done i think the only quests i didn't do were the ones where you like take out the gangs or whatever right. I, I did everything else um but with inquisition i'm still kind of feeling out how much time i want to put into it obviously like we are getting into the busiest time of year for ken and i as well so uh that <laughs> that's gonna have an effect on things <laughs> uh but obviously we will keep up with every week of it but you know it'll also be interesting kind of figuring it out and the reason why i wanted to cover all of that to start is that this week this intro week this table setting week is going to be very dense uh, we've got two main quest missions to get through as well as all the recruitments for all the companions because three of them happen as part of the first main quest mission and then four of them happen depending on when you decide to do it and obviously they are all optional um after the second mission before you know all the haven stuff happens and then the other two you recruit depending on which route you take with the mage or templar recruit so it's very there's like a lot of cogs turning in the background so we kind of decided that the best way to handle that was just make this episode very dense and get a lot of the table setting out of the way and a lot of like our upfront thoughts out of the way before we got into it. So with that in mind, uh, Ken, do we want to talk about the characters that we made before we jump into talking about, uh, I mean, just the the opening, the freaking opening of this game, man. Mm. <laughs> like... Oh, I talked about it last week, but like I love that when you, you, you boot this game up and you have this... You're just looking at this scene of mages and Templars walking in these single file lines towards a building. And at this point, you don't really have context for what's going on, right? You just kind of see mages and Templars and you get in your head like, okay, you know, something's going on here. They're not fighting, which is weird. So maybe they're gathering for something and it's big. There's a big deal going on. And then when you hit new game, like it just blows up. <laughs> Like, the yep. place they're going to just blows up, and people are, like, running and screaming and stuff like that. And it, the first thing I thought of was the Kirkwall Chantry, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it was, it's the same sort of thing where this huge explosion happens. There's all this panic. And so I feel like right away it almost sets you up for, like, a, 
oh anders is at it again (laughs) um which if you let him live is a is a worry you would have but if you uh you know tie off your loose ends like me um but beyond that we like jump right into character creation we get to make Mm our character and we get this little like dreamlike sequence and and ken i i know you used your original character right the, mm-hmm. the sort yeah. of canon character that you always use yeah yeah so i, I guess it's something that's worth pointing out is that like in character creation there are four or races that you can play at this time mm-hmm. we're um, back to multiple races multiple yeah. genders all that i mean we had male and female hawk so yeah so that's human dwarf elf and then kunari because the first time yeah. kunari is ever playable um. So you know, I'm given all these options, and I still end up doing the same thing I did every other game. I I end up playing a human, uh, male mage. Which the interesting thing about uh, so, so like they do in a way have like the same sort of origins that you do in or, like the actual origins game. You don't play through them necessarily, but like de- depending on all of those different factors, you can your character will have a very specific backstory that they don't really necessarily show you, but they at least tell you. So like by my playing as a uh, human, even a mage, uh, my character is was like from nobility, and he was part of the circle when uh, everything happened. Dragon Age Two happened, um, and then so he was basically like one of the rebel mages, and uh, he like he he has noble ties, which will come out at some point. But throughout the entire game, like my backstory is a mage that was at one point part of the rebellion uh, is brought up throughout, and they go out of their way to, like, have, like, special dialogue, like, both, like, people talking to you as well as things that, like, you have, like, uh, special dialogue choices you can make that kind of tie into that same backstory. So, yeah, that was, that was my, that was my character and that, like I did with Origins and Dragon Age 2, I added a human mage and I'm, so I'm coming from, from a very mage-centric, uh, mm-hmm. background. Yeah, for me, I made a, you know, the first time I played this game, I did I'd say a pretty similar route to what you did. Um, human, male, mage. Um, obviously, you went for very different romance options than I did. <laughs> but uh, I definitely played like a um, rebellious sort of mage who sided with the mages and wanted to abolish the circle and um, all that kind of stuff. And this time around, obviously, for Normandy FM, I've been trying to play some different characters play some characters that are offering a viewpoint that i mean i've seen before so i mentioned it before but i'm playing a female elf rogue um which is already just a really drastic difference i was kind of waffling between whether i wanted to play canary or or elf and you know because i felt like canary that's a viewpoint we don't get to see uh, anywhere else in the Dragon Age universe, and I thought that might have interesting backstory, but I ultimately settled on Elf because A, uh, you know, I know what happens in this game, and I feel like that particular viewpoint will shed mm. a lot on it, which it already kind of has. And uh, also, B, uh, I wanted to see how much Bioware's writing about elven characters from elven perspectives had changed between origins and inquisition because mm-hmm. i played city elf in origins and i found some of that stuff very interesting but felt it was very let's say contained between different areas you know when you went into an area that was very elven 
or, or had elf stuff in it then all of a sudden you'd be like oh yeah i'm an elf too <laughs> but elsewhere it was never really commented on and already in inquisition uh they do a really good job of stressing the sort of tensions that exist i mean i am constantly getting remarks where people will immediately distrust me just based on the fact that i'm an elf and all that mm -hmm. um and i think the other interesting aspect is that while you get to depending on what you pick you know there are kind of different origins and things where you will pick like oh i'm human you know human rogue and they'll pop up with a thing that's like here's what your origin backstory is and it'll kind of give you a little brief on it and i like that because it lets them kind of establish a baseline for you even though it's it doesn't feel as flexible as the mm -hmm. dragon age origins but at least they're kind of being like hey this is what your character was up to this is a thing that we've written that we feel like makes sense for the both the race you chose and the class you chose for why your character because that's ultimately the question that they have to answer right is why your character was at the um right oh crap what's the name of the thing i can't remember <laughs> uh the first thing that eric has forgot this season <laughs> um the it's it's, it's the, the gathering it's the peacemaking it's the the peace summit the summit yeah the conclave there we go i mean i was trying to think of the word for when multiple groups come together to try and make a peace and, and summit was the answer but conclave also the answer would have been an answer there we would have accepted that as well <laughs> um they also need to come up with a reason for why your character was at the conclave but mm -hmm. the thing that i've liked uh especially in early hours is that like once we get a little bit of freedom here uh I got to talk to characters like Josephine and basically kind of in character role play out my reasoning for why I was doing different things. Mm. So yep. like Josie will ask you about, Hey, you know why, you know, how do you feel about being away from your clan? Cause you're mm. Dalish and all that. And you can choose to be like, Oh, I miss them a lot. Or, Oh, I bet they'd be yep. really proud of me. Or you can be like, oh, actually, they I don't give a shit about them. I wanted to strike yep. out on my own, which is what my character is. Um, I, I'm yep. playing in my head like this Dalish huntress who did very well and was like the best huntress in her clan, but she didn't want to stay living the Dalish pilgrimage forever. She wanted to like see the world and explore a little bit. So mm -hmm. that was how she ended up at the Conclave. And the game's really good about letting you kind of... Yeah work your way there almost like it's playing a dm and it's just asking you the right questions to get you to get into yep. this and then providing you with prompts that feel very oh yeah that's that's how i want to take my character that's what i want to do it it, yep. it almost feels like a good dm session in that yeah and, and granted i've never played dungeons and dragons myself but i really enjoy that part yeah like the like i guess the equivalent stuff that they that i had like the conversation with josie was uh, she asked about, like, you know, my history with the circle, how did I feel about the rebellion? But there's also, like, these really charming little smaller role-playing moments you can get. Because, like, she talks about, um, like, you know, the Templars, and you have an op you have an opportunity to say, oh, I had, I had, like, this huge crush on one of the Templars at the circle. And then she's like, wait, what, what happened? And then you can be like, oh, I was too nervous to actually say anything, so it never went anywhere. But it's just, like, little... It... It's really interesting to go from straight from Hog to this, where I feel like... Or it, it finds the the real best of both worlds for the mm -hmm. role playing that Dragon Age has let you do over, the, mm -hmm. over the years because Origins you got this completely blank slate that like, but you also get like text, uh, your, your actual dialogue choices through text so like, there's no sort of like 
dialogue wheel friction where like you get like you you pick a uh, dialogue option and it's not exactly what you want but it's close enough you kind of live with it um you know Inquisition still runs into those things but like it is still gives you the tools to really flesh out a character and their motivations their worldviews in ways that I don't really think that they've ever been able to portray in this more, more holistic way in any other game they've done because even mm-hmm. Shepard like there were there, there's sort of like a baseline of who Shepard is um mm-hmm. Whether you know he he or she leans uh, Paragon or Renegade, but the Inquisitor through coming like from all these different possible backgrounds, it would be very very difficult to uh, manage that and like still give people like a sense of ownership over their character, which I think they really have done very well in Inquisition, mm-hmm. um, just because like there's like a, such a breadth of motivation and uh, character building that you are able to have agency over as a player. Um, and it it gets into like the themes of like we can put a pen in some of this, but like how your character uh, handles religion and mm-hmm. um, sort of like you know an incoming holy war and where they how they feel about being put kind of in the center of it in ways that like I said like I even like Shepard is my favorite Bioware protagonist, but I've never been able to have that level of control over him. Yeah, the more like the more I've been playing this game, uh, if you look at a character like Hawk or Shepard, it always felt like I was kind of just I was driving a character almost. Mm-hmm. Like someone had handed me a character sheet and it was like, Okay, this is the character you were playing and with Hawk especially it felt like once I had kind of locked in what my personality was as Hawk, mm-hmm. um, like my that was that was it, that was the character development that was done. And I love, like, don't get me wrong, I love sarcastic Hawk so much. Yeah. But I didn't have a lot of, let's say, wiggle room to <laughs> develop Hawk beyond that. Um, you kind of just fell into one of those archetypes, and and that was that. Um, yeah. And also, Hawk is Hawk. And, and on the flip side, like you said, Origins is just, you have the blankest slate of a protagonist. Like, the most cardboard cutout, insert-yourself character ever which can Mm. be good in some ways like i don't think that's always necessarily a bad thing but i don't feel like it particularly did anything interesting with that idea either it doesn't endear you to i would say it doesn't endear you to that character in the same way that i feel Mm -mm. towards the inquisitor who feels like i could write you a thesis on what who my inquisitor is where the warden was just this fucking dude that and i I also think that just comes into like the story of origins was not inward or introspective in the same way they think with Inquisition is, which... Or even Dragon Age 2 wasn't really either in that way, because, like you said, you kind of take what you get with whichever kind of personality you kind of lean towards the most. Um, Mm -hmm. Where there's just, like, so many opportunities for characterization for the main character that you just... I don't feel like Bioware has ever done. And, like, they didn't replicate it really with Andromeda either, because I feel like, to an extent, Ryder was also kind of like a hot character where you're falling into, like, a very, like, kind of a... I mean, there, there's, you know, some diverging points, but, like, there were specific personalities that you leaned mm-hmm. into, more so than belief systems, and uh, just, you know, sort of giving a, more of a flavor to a perspective than you could ever give before. Yeah, like, these little moments, and I, I think it's important that we highlight this just as, like, the way that your character develops throughout the game, and you, you get these chances to just be like, hey, you know, I'm going to 
like like my character my inquisitor feels separated from me it doesn't feel like an insert but also it feels like i'm almost developing collaboratively with the game Mm -hmm. like the game is saying hey we've got some ideas now you meet us halfway let's build together and i think that's something that is honestly really cool to see in a role-playing game period because i feel like that's just not something that happens usually it kind of goes one way or the other you play a very set character or you play a very blank slate that you kind of have to put yourself into um and so to see it kind of meet you halfway is very interesting but um We, we open after our cold open and our character creation and we have this weird wacky dream where we're running from all kinds of monsters and we're climbing up this like bone mountain and uh, we, we reach up towards this spectral lady that tries to help us and then we wake up we are in the dungeon because apparently the conclave has exploded and our character, not yet called the Inquisitor, but our character, um, who I guess we'll just call the the person, um, what's your, has been. Do what's you up? know your character's last name? Uh, oh, I'd have to. I'd honestly have to look it up. Okay, cool. That's that's one thing they also do. It's like you have definitive last names depending on your background, and yeah, they, the mage one is Trevelyan, right? Yeah, hum- the human one specifically. Oh, the so human one. Okay. Yeah, it can be mage or uh, warrior, rogue. Um, but they that is also something interesting they do is because they did not uh, do this in Origins, despite the fact that you had to find last names. Characters will acknowledge you by that last name occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, this is something that I guess we talk about more as the season goes on. But like they do a lot to kind of like. It was always kind of weird to me when in Mass Effect, where like the closest people to me would call me Shepard, like my last name. So, like, mm. they give you, like, kind of, like, pet names and other things to, like, kind of... There's, there's a lot that's done in terms of, like, how people refer to the, your main character uh, that kind of... Well, I mean, Ken, if you want to hear about my experience, most characters call my character Knife Ears, so that's fun. <laughs> well, that that also happens. I mean, people just call me Mage, I guess. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I'm telling you, like, playing this game as an elf is definitely, like they they drive home like hey guess what all those times that you got to like brief it briefly like peek in on how much it sucked to be an elf you're gonna live it the whole <laughs> game and you're gonna get fed up with it and you'll probably start snapping at some people too and god knows i have because my inquisitor's not fucking around with that shit <laughs> um but yeah it's um it's very interesting so as, as we come to Leliana and Cassandra are questioning us, very similar, again, to Dragon Age 2, uh, we are the only survivor of an explosion. Uh, hey, guess what? The Temple of the Sacred Ashes, uh, which is where this peace summit was being brokered by the Divine. Uh, right now, everyone pretty much thinks the Divine is dead uh, because there was a massive explosion. They have not been able to find the Divine or anything. Um, and there's also a giant rift in the sky, like a literal giant tear in the veil, like into the fade, uh, that they're calling the breach that is just leaking demons <laughs> like crazy. Um, so I guess you could say that this game really starts with a bang. Um, mm. and as we are questioned, you know, they take us through the tutorials and kind of like, Hey, here's the the dialogue wheel which is very different this time around uh 
I feel it's it feels like a, an evolution of the the DA2 wheel where you kind of would have those three different uh, tones of response and then you know maybe some other branching options or stuff but there are so many like icons on the dialogue mm-hmm. wheel now um, there's like the crying eye which is like the sad like sympathetic one or like the 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 knight that's all red and has his arms crossed he's really mad it's like that's the aggressive one or you can just have a thumbs up which is like approval or you could just have like uh god what's the one that's like a star where it's like that could open up different conversation paths within the conversation but then there's also the one that means that you only get to choose one of these and and then there's the romance and then like, and then there's so the many. ones that are like specific to like background stuff like the mage one has like an open hand with you know what looks like a spell being yeah. cast yeah and then you have ones that are like uh yeah you have race ones you have uh class ones you have different ones that you can unlock later on which are part of like the history knowledge perk or like mm-hmm. the underworld knowledge perk and stuff like that um man there's a lot of dialogue options in this game mm-hmm. fitting it all onto the wheel almost seems foolhardy but it just barely somehow works like i'm not saying it's the cleanest thing in the world it is definitely at times like they are showing you a speak and say but you don't know what any of the animals on the speak and say are and you're just kind of like well i'm going to pick the one that feels kind of right but also that feels good because then it's just like okay well do i want to be crying eye right now or do i want to be angry red knight right now (laughs) um i mean that's in a way that's kind of intuitive like you know Mm. it's it's not saying outright like pick this one to romance somebody but if you see a heart and the line is like yo you looking thick (laughs) you know you know what you're gonna say to iron bull so um i i I don't know i I go back and forth on this i'm kind of interested to hear what you think of the dialogue wheel because part of me is like it is massively overstuffed and sometimes completely unclear in a way that is not helpful but then other times i'm just like oh yeah i just picked the one that sounds right and has an icon that i'm like comfortable with well i think something that's like i guess important to note is that a lot of those sort of special icon uh dialogue options aren't there a lot like at once and so like we just we listed off so many different types of dialogue options yes. that it brings up they're yeah. not, like those are very seldom on the wheel at the same time um generally if you get like the ones like the cry and i or the stoic night like those are on something to convey sort of like emotional intent as opposed to i guess those are, those are the ones that are yeah yeah the, those are the ones that are more along the lines of like say uh Dragon Age 2 or Andromeda, where it, it is just about, like, the emotion you want to express in whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, more often than not, you'll just kind of get, like, three uh, three dialogue options that aren't labeled in a certain way. There are, to some extent, it still matches up with DA2. Like, top right is, you know, the more uh, uh, nice, fine, whatever, nice uh, one. The middle one is the more cheeky, sarcastic and the bottom right is the one that's more aggressive. In general, though, like it does a lot. It, it doesn't do a whole lot of um, throwing it all in, at you at once. And so, like, I never really felt like I was overwhelmed by the breadth of my the ways I could respond. 
and also like some in some of the stuff that was like you know the more uh the like the special dialogue options that were brought up by like your class or your uh, like the points you put in and like in terms of inquisition perks those specifically were so sparingly used and uh, so like it's a lot but it's not like, like it's something that you have to like memorize and always remember what it's going to be because it's never all given to you at once which I think maybe speaks to like just like a certain brevity of the way the conversations go versus something like Inquisition or not Inquisition Origins where you get like these full complete lines like that you then you, you know like up to like seven or eight of them at once that are supposed to like progress the conversation in one of eight different ways uh so I don't know like I didn't I never really found that particular uh thing that overbearing I, I guess maybe overbearing isn't the way I, I would go for it. I'm just kind of... Hmm. I, I Every every time I play a Bioware game, I come up against the dialogue wheel. Because I feel like in its most distilled pure form, the dialogue wheel is a beautiful thing. It is... There's something comforting about it. It is, it is RPG comfort food to me to have the dialogue wheel. I feel like it is the most effective tool at managing character dialogues because like, you know, when you look at things like obviously Origins had the very classic CRPG select a line of text. And that works for some games, I think. If you look at like a a divinity or something, that's going to feel a lot more natural there. Um but with a BioWare game where you're often making choices in a certain way and dialogue is branching in a certain way i always like that it was very clear like hey if you anything on like every time i play mass effect or, or even dragon age 2 i know that anything on the left hand side of the wheel is not going to advance the dialogue past where we are right now right i'm always going to be able to go over to investigate and then do all of the those like side things and then go back and then do the main thing and move on and i know that a lot of people have criticized the way that that can kind of stilt video game dialogue and i think maybe here is just where i'm starting to notice that more than anything else is that i'm becoming much more aware of the ways that let's say some dialogues in this game can feel circular in a way like every time you kind of split off to a subject and then come back around it always does come back around so that way you could ask any of the other questions Mm. and still have it feel natural um and and to be clear this is not about any of the cutscene dialogue this is not about really anything that has like a level of voice acting and mocap to it this is for like where you walk up to somebody when they're standing around you're just like so what do you think about how we did on that last mission well inquisitor this is how i feel it's like very much like that that sort of canned dialogue but i feel like i can more clearly see the tiers of dialogue that are happening and again this is a massive game there is so much dialogue to get through just for every companion like when i started it up the other day and i was talking to cassandra and i was like okay time to start doing cassandra side missions let's learn about cassandra's life it's like oh my god there's so many different text windows to go through and things to learn about her backstory and different things i have to talk to her about to get approval to eventually get to the point where i will get her mission and it's god it's just a big game ken it's not a small game you lied to me (laughs) 
Um, we, we might be getting ahead of ourselves here, but I just I wanted to bring up the dialogue. Um, we need to actually talk about playing this video game at some point. I guess so. Uh, so after a little bit of crying eye or angry night, we get to uh, basically convince Cassandra uh, or be forcibly pushed forward by Cassandra to go see if this mark that the... Sorry, not the Inquisitor yet. Um, we're just going to call them the Inquisitor. All right, let's just like... If, if everybody knows who they become. Yeah. Um, to see if this mark that the Inquisitor has uh, can do something with the rift that is open in the sky. Because it turns out this whole time while we've been questioning all that, we also have this green sparky thingy on our hands that's doing all kinds of weird stuff. And we go outside, we see the, the breach kind of stir up a little bit and our mark reacts like it's harry potter's scar so uh <laughs> it is it's harry potter's scar i'm sorry uh harry potter written by hatsune miku uh so it, it's at this point that we get control of our character and we start progressing along this very linear path where we're uh you know at first we're just kind of walking around and you know it's very dragon age uh, we have a jump button this time yeah. uh revolutionary <laughs> it actually is because ken let me tell you i've skyrimmed so many mountains in this game already like i've just absolutely gone up them in ways you are not supposed to go up them and broken the game because of it what would be dope is if it wasn't on the same if it wasn't mounted to the same button as the interact so uh well it's not for me on it's not for me on pc so well it is on ps4 so well, look. Nice get, forward thinking there, Bioware. We'll, we'll, we'll talk in a moment about why the controller people still get the better end of the stick on this one. Um, and as as we progress and bunny hop our way along the trail and all that, uh, we get to some combat because Cassandra runs off to fight some demons, and we get to fight some demons. And luckily, we see our weapon of choice hanging out by a crate uh, wherever we fall, which is handy. Um, and, and we, we get to fighting and, and Ken, mm. so before we get into just how combat feels in this game, I just want to say that I'm really not a fan of the fact that you have to mash the attack button or hold it or whatever. Um, cause when I was playing Dragon Age 2, I could just tell my hawk to attack somebody and they just start auto attacking like automatically they just do attacks as fast as they could i did not have to keep mashing any buttons in this game i gotta keep mashing buttons or i gotta hold a button and on keyboard that feels real bad do not okay. like it not wild about it um That's... on controller that probably feels a little bit better but because that yeah i mean on ps4 it's you hit r2 you hold down r2 which is i mean is the easiest possible place I could have mapped that to, just to do like standard attack, because now my thumbs are free to, you know, cycle around to abilities while I'm still attacking. So like I'm never mm -hmm. defenseless, and that feels really good. Um, and a lot of, I mean, I guess this is, this is I guess we're gonna start talking about this. Like Inquisition is more about like the passage of time as opposed to like individual moments and like key plays. Um, at least like playing as a mage, I don't really, I can't really speak to anything else. But, um, so, a lot of it is, uh, kind of, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this, 
basically like you're get, you're given the actual like tactical view on console for the first time in Dragon Age, and a lot of it has to do with setting up things and then like very like periodically like m- moving time forward, and so like I can set up spells like a, an ice wall behind the enemy so they can't escape, uh, hold down the right trigger for a little for a little bit, you know, let the spell go off, and then tell my teammates to attack accordingly, and I feel like it is one of the it's like one of the better merging of actual like action based play and strategic based play that I don't feel like Origins or two ever really figured out where one they were both like very much on one side or the other. And it makes Inquisition just like altogether the most satisfying to play for me. Just because there is always a sense that I can very seamlessly get from uh, the more strategic, tactical play that I might need at any given moment versus, you know, I get to, like, a more uh, simple fight and I can just, you know, kind of plow through it uh, through the action phase instead. Um, and it, it kind of is what I'm... Like, and we talked about it, like, with the character creation, sort of, like, the way, way it lets you roleplay. Inquisition might be, you know, this huge-ass open-world game that people, a lot of people remember it for, but I don't think the game gets enough credit for really figuring out what is the proper happy medium of all of these systems that it has tried to do across Origins and 2, and I feel like that is best exemplified in the combat. At least for mages. I can't... I don't really know how this, this would all feel to somebody that has uh, got, um, like, melee-style weapons. Oh boy, let's talk about it again. Okay. Um... So, again, the first time I played through this game, I was a mage. Uh, If I'm remembering correctly, I think I went for electricity, and then I went for rift, I want to say. That sounds right. Um, And my experience was pretty much like, I I loved the combat. Uh, It felt really good. Oftentimes, you know, I'd be switching between the strategic and the uh in person view and i've seen a lot of people refer to this as like mmo combat where you're kind of going through spell rotations and uh you get into a very natural groove and i agree with all that as a mage character because mage i think ranged characters feel very good to play in this system I Mm. i think they you know a lot of the systems feel very natural for a ranged character they do not feel natural for a melee character. Mm. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you that one of the weirdest things is I, the reason why I brought it up earlier, the fact that you kind of have to mash the attack button or hold it down when you're a mage, you know, you just kind of hit whatever is in range, right? And you can flip Mm. around between targets, but you don't really have to think about range or, or let's say reach. Um, whereas as a dual bladed rogue, it's very easy to, let's say not judge range or reach correctly and i will swing at the air (laughs) and Mm -hmm. not hit anything but the game is like well you wanted to attack so that's what you're doing um and other times like i just don't feel it's as crunchy as i want it to be to to let me know like that i'm hitting something um because i feel like i'm getting feedback from every one of my characters at the same time and so i'm not really seeing the effect of one thing that i liked about hawk in in dragon age 2 is that whenever i attack something is very clear that i was hitting it and it would make you know very clear sounds a little like like uh and 
it's it's here in this game but it's not as pronounced and it's not as like crunchy or or like Mm -hmm. visceral as i want it to be i think that was honestly one of the benefits of dragon age 2 was that they went so overboard on making it action heavy that rogue felt really good to play in that respect because Mm -hmm. you were playing this character that was always like in people's faces and hitting them with daggers and stuff like that whereas in this in this system honestly i'm I'm going like well if i didn't you know i chose not to go archer because i was like well you know i'm going to get sarah i'm going to get varic i'll have two archers on my team already uh there's only like one dual bladed rogue in the game and i'm not going to use him ever so i might as well go that and and i'll just see what this class is like and it's not it's not bad enough that i want to like i I like that the option is there if i ever want to take it that i could just easily go like hey i'm gonna respect my character now and uh you know completely switch over to bow and arrow that's always an option and i'm definitely keeping like whenever i find high level bows i'm keeping one around for myself at all times in case i ever do decide to pull that trigger but for right now um I'm getting to the point with my abilities. That's really like the weird thing is that rogue in this game more than any of the other ones is extremely ability heavy. And you can get to a point where you have these interactions between your abilities that create these just, Oh my God, there's one, there's one like way late that I'm working on getting the specialization for right now. Um, where you do like a series of attacks and I think if you spec your character right and get all the right abilities and stuff, you end up doing like six attacks at like 600% damage each. So you basically mm-hmm. get like one shot anything. And that's like including bosses and stuff like that. But you have to spec your character to get there. And you are basically a glass cannon. And it's not useful against crowds because it's only going to hit one target. But when you come up against one really big enemy you're going to be able to take him down no matter what. And I kind of like that aspect of the rogue, the dual blade rogue. And so mm. I'm like, I'm eager to delve more into that. And then maybe as the game goes on, I might switch it up and try some of the archery stuff because that also seems very interesting. I remember reading, I know that speedrunners use Varric specifically to like speedrun this game because apparently he is just super good. And then also uh, like, rogue like archery rogue in general is supposed to be like very easy to breeze through this game with so have um, you considered like i mean how is tactical view for like a melee character it's not good uh mm, because okay. it's really again it's really hard to tell what you're hitting and i'm finding myself using just kind of action combat more than i am uh tactical combat and i think that's just a reflection of what my character does when i was playing a mage i was using a lot of spells that were about positioning and putting things in the right area and hitting the most enemies that i could and kind of forward thinking and stuff like that whereas when i'm playing as a rogue i'm very much like hit my stealth look for the highest health highest value target on the field take them out duck back into stealth do it all over again um so i find myself in that play style like not thinking as much about overall team strategy and overall like team positioning and more like how can i be doing the thing that will that will work best for me and in some cases i've had to like go out to tactical view and be like hey cassandra like stop 
stop defending the Inquisitor who's running around in stealth, and please defend the healer who's getting walloped by, like, six characters. <laughs> um, but overall, uh, tactical views, not really. I was using it a lot more when I was a mage than I am yep. as a rogue. Hmm. Um, anyways, the other thing that we also learn about here is healing potions. Um... So I guess we should probably talk about how healing in this game works, too. Uh, I mean, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, well, okay. Let's explain how it works, and let's talk about how we like it. Um, in this game, characters themselves do not have healing abilities. They have barriers. Mages can make barriers. And I think there are, like, some different skills and perks and stuff like that that can cause some sort of like either armor gain for warriors mm -hmm. or i think i want to say assassin has at least a one ability that might let them heal but i might be wrong about that um otherwise like you're kind of really reliant on barriers and armor and you also have your health bar which is only recoverable if you use a healing potion or like a regen potion or something like that you have a finite number of those potions that you refill every time you get to a supply stash or whatever um and those i think the number that you hold is universal um like if you have nine or eight healing potions or whatever then that is how many your entire party has so mm -hmm. it's not like everybody has eight it's you have eight total for the party um Ken, I like this system. I'm a fan mm. of this system. Okay. And I will tell you why. Um, the first thing it does is it lets healing feel like less of a burden. Let's put it that way. And I like the fact that in a pinch, any of my characters, like I'm not immediately doomed to a wipe the second my healer goes down you know uh mm. whereas i felt like especially when i was playing dragon age 2 if meryl or anders went down then suddenly like combat was either completely insurmountable or just extremely difficult because suddenly like the thing that was keeping my characters alive is now dead here i've at least got some level of salvageability left but i have to make a very conscious sacrifice to do it um which my long-term health pool you know i have to sacrifice that if i lose my my short term and that's the other balancing act that i like is it lets barriers both feel like this very okay you're going to make a conscious choice about we're going to use our short-term barriers here to prevent damage to our health bars but also barriers can start to feel a little bit stronger too like you can put points into barriers and make them very strong to the point that now you have this other health bar to work with and it is temporary it is fleeting but it lets you explore areas of healing where otherwise like if you just had a character that could constantly put up healing fields and stuff like that it'd be super op and you would never want to create a mage that could do anything else whereas here like you just you know you every one of your mages is going to at some level get some amount of barrier casting and then they get to start specializing into their chosen field and that's what they get to do so um i like this system but i'm interested in hearing it from your perspective especially as a mage character what's frustrating about it for me 
is that it is finite. Like you run out of potions, and like say you're in a, say you're in like you know a boss fight, like a really or you know one of the dragon fights that you do at some point because those can get pretty tough near the end game. Mm-hmm. Um, you're kind of stuck with whatever you can, whatever you like. I guess spec out enough to get because like you can get. I don't know how much more you can get, but you can get up to like I think like nine or so. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's across the party. I've maxed out, and that just fucking sucks because like, unless you're babysitting every character throughout the entire time, you can't account for like when the AI is gonna do something ridiculous and stupid that puts a character in the line of fire and then they get immediately knocked out. Granted, this is something we didn't really bring up. You can revive characters yes. in the yeah. way that you would in like a. And honestly, for some reason, Gears of War, the first thing that comes to my mind, if you go up to a person on the ground, you can revive them. And then they won't get full health, but they'll get, like, a, enough to function again. But if you've got um, no potions left at this point, that's not really enough, because the same thing that killed them before is going to kill them again. And it's just... Healing is, like, supposed to be a specialization in these games, and it's just, like, a frustrating thing to me. That is, like, a complete... Like, a playstyle that's completely been taken out of the equation and I'm not super satisfied with the thing that they uh, switched it up with because like, the one thing I think that it does that is kind of nice is that it makes party composition just like more free because like you kind of always had to have Anders and Wynn with you in the past two games just because mm-hmm. you needed somebody to do that thing where if you, if you put it where everybody can do it you can you know play around with your uh, party makeup in ways that you couldn't before at least not necessarily viably um but even so, like, I don't feel like the system that they've got where it is based on what you, you can carry in your pockets is what's necessarily the right way to go because it, it, you feel very hamstrung by the end of, like, you know, you'll get in these really difficult fights that you can't really turn around because there you, you can run out of the one thing that can really substantially heal anybody maybe midway through the fight, and then you just kind of... It's constantly, like, a game of, like, getting whoever is still up and about to uh, the people that are lying on the ground and just trying to salvage that. And it's just... I haven't run into the issues with it yet in terms of the, the places that we're doing now, but I remember fights against, like, dragons and um, some of, like, the late-game stuff in Trespasser that was just, like, this constant thing. I mean, like, trying to switch around to characters and get people to just revive other ones and it's just not not the loop that I want I would like for there to in whatever Dragon Age whatever form Dragon Age 4 takes like if they can maybe find a way to make the reviving system work and also still have a fucking healer that would be dope I want to say that there are some higher level mage abilities that maybe you get like a revive I don't think you can there no you do a, get a revive I do revive. definitely know that yeah. but there is no just like standard healing um and even that, that's, like, so high level that I didn't get it until... Or I think I think I'd, I eventually expected where both me and Dorian had it, just in case one of us went down and the other one also had it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, it's just, like, healing is, like, a very standard thing that mages are supposed to be able to do. Not just in this game, just, like, in the way that RPGs are supposed to handle. Like, there's... I don't like that healing is this, like, resource, this finite resource that you can run out of and then find yourself in a position where fights are just constantly trying to work your way around that well i mean it's also worth mentioning here that like lyrium has also or like mana has also changed in this game it's it's very different yeah. from what i remember 
Yeah. Um, I'm you're gonna have to go over it because again, I've not played like the mage side of this game for like right. five years. So it's basically like you have like a universal cooldown, which is like you see it through like on your uh, your power wheel. It's like you've got like this uh, line that goes all the way around, and it's constantly like uh, you know going back and forth. Like you need to have like a certain level of cooldown done to do certain abilities, and so like sometimes you'll have to kind of stick out with your uh, regular. Uh, attack while you let that uh, cooldown cool like you know completely recharge. Then you can use the more costly stuff. Um, I think it I think it works because like again it makes it where your abilities are not part of this very finite resource, which is a really frustrating thing specifically in Origins. I didn't run into as much of a problem in two, but um, just like constantly like being without the thing that lets you do uh, your abilities and just like play the game like in a way like. That's more of, like, a granular issue, just, like, to be like, mm-hmm. oh, this thing prevents me from playing the game, which is maybe a little bit petty and, like, maybe not what I really want to say, but it at least can feel like that in the moment. Like, I am not able to turn the fight around because I have run out of the thing that I just didn't have enough of at the time. And so I really like Inquisition System, which puts everything... Like, I'm, I never feel like I am unable to use abilities that can turn fights around. It's just a matter of, like, really making the most of the time between using one ability and the next. Mm-hmm. I brought it up because it with that system, I think if you had just, like, direct healing, then that would immediately just imbalance the game, right? If you could just always heal without penalty. Because I think the general idea is that they want you to be making a choice, right? Like, you are healing is you are undoing damage that the enemy has done in some way and so like what are you giving up to do that and in previous games it was okay you're giving up lyrium which you have to either or or mana which you have to either like earn back over time or consume a lyrium potion to quickly recover it's like okay you've made that choice that is the sacrifice you were willing to make to undo the damage that the enemy just did to you Whereas here, I think if you just had no cooldown, like cooldowns was the only cost, the only thing you're giving up, like that you're trading off is damage. And that's it, like potential damage. So then fights quickly become just a an inevitable war of attrition at that point. And the only thing that's going to really stop you is if there's an enemy that does so much damage that they can kill you faster than you can heal and then that feels really bad because it's like oh well this enemy just hits me so hard that i can't even heal it off but that's the only way for them to like counteract the fact that you can always be healing well i think that the way to kind of like counteract that instead of making healing a resource like make healing spells the most like the most costly like you maybe you maybe you can only heal one party member at a time instead of like the group stuff that they have in uh origins and two and then make it like Okay, you know, it's got its own... Oh, something that I, I maybe need to clarify is, like, there is a universal cooldown, but there's also, like, individual cooldowns for each ability. Mm-hmm. So, say you've got a, you know, you've got an ability that maybe has, like, a, a very small uh, individual cooldown, but it's costly for your universal one. So, in It's similar the scenario, to, like, an EX meter in a fighting game, right? Yeah, that's, that's a decent way to put it. Um... So, like, in, in this, you know, hypothetical that I'm bringing up, say you've got a healing ability that has a, like, maybe, like, a 30-second, 45-second, minute-long cooldown. You can only maybe heal one party member instead of all of them, and it also takes up all of your universal. 
Like something like it, if they if the issue is, you know, the cost benefit of healing. I don't think that you need to make it where whether you don't have potions, just make healing by itself uh, a very costly thing to do on its own. I think the other important thing to know is that there are additional potions that you can get over the course of the game. Like you can level up the potions that you have and then to make them more effective. And you can also get like one of the first potions I unlocked was a regen potion, which was rather than a healing potion or I shouldn't say rather than like I could have my healing potions, but then in another pocket I could have my regen potions, Mm -hmm. which were not going to heal me in a burst like the healing standard healing potions do but they heal me over time and that gave me like another and granted those are you have to craft those like you have to specifically craft those they are not something that just auto refills at every uh potion box but in that respect i was like okay well it reminded me a little bit of the witcher 3 in that like i was like okay now i'm thinking a little bit about okay i'm going to go into an area where there's a lot of enemies or i'm going to have to go through kind of a gauntlet or i'm about to go into a dungeon i should probably stock up on regen potions so that way i have a lot of healing to work with or like vice versa maybe i'm about to go into a boss fight and i don't want regen potions i want lyrium potions so that way my mages are constantly casting spells and putting barriers up and things like that um I think it just opens things up a little bit more. I definitely get what you're saying. And I do I do ultimately wish there was some like super high level way to just heal because then at least it's something that you would have to invest into. Uh, you know, it mm. wouldn't be something that's just basic and it would have some sort of like higher cost to it. Uh and and that way you're not like completely up shit's creek whenever you run out of healing potions. But at the same time, I like the game is basically telling you, like, hey, you know, you have a finite amount of resources. When you fight an enemy like a dragon, okay, like, you have a finite amount of resources that you are going to work with to kill this thing. It's going to be doing this much damage and has this much health. How are you going to beat it with what you have? And do you need to, like, consider other ways, like... If it's a dragon, should you be seeking out fire-resistant armor to make it easier to withstand attacks and things like that? Um, I find all those choices interesting. Ugh. Ken, we've spent already over an hour, and we've barely gotten into We're the like actual plot of the game. We're like ten minutes into the actual game. <laughs> <laughs> uh so after we get through our tutorials and stuff i mean look we're, we're talking about the broad stuff we're talking about like there's so much that's changed systems wise between mm-hmm. two and inquisition that it is important for us to like address all this yeah uh after our little encounter and cassandra is basically like well i guess i should let you keep a weapon so that way you don't yeah. die which i mean can be that can be a very heated exchange depending on how you decide to respond because <laughs> i'm a mage and she's like drop your weapon drop your drop your staff and i'm like you know i don't need this to make fire come out of my fingers, right? That's not a th- like, and then like I think she gets like a slight disapproval from that. It's, it's you know a moment where she realizes that she is maybe letting the, the situation cloud her judgment. Um, mm. And I, I, it's one of those moments where like you know your uh, your class and your background gives you like an additional dialogue that you're not going to get elsewhere. Yeah, for me, I, like especially at the beginning, I was playing this like character who was way in over her head. And was just totally like 
holy shit like what happened what are you talking about like i'll do whatever you want to do like i i have no idea what's going on right now i just want to figure out what's going on and why all these people are dead um so my character was like cool i'll drop in then she's basically like wait no never mind i can't expect you to not get killed you should hold your daggers so um Hmm. it's, there's, it's there's interesting specific... de- depending on the different ones you choose. Though. I've definitely done that line before where you're like, you know I don't need the staff, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, there's like a very specific point I want to talk about. Kind of like my character's sort of uh, viewpoint at this point. But I think it's best for, for um, when we get to Valerio. So we'll oh, absolutely. Yeah, in. we'll we'll talk about that stuff once we get there. Yeah. Um, Anyways, we now encounter Solus and Varric, who are fighting off some more demons. And, I mean, Varric, we we kind of know who this character is. And I feel like the game almost has this attitude around Varric of like, Hey, it's Varric! Everybody yeah. loves Varric! Look who's here! And all that. Um, they definitely have this... I, I want to say at the beginning, when you first meet him, he, you're definitely like, Oh, you're Varric, the one who was with like the champion of Kirkwall and all yeah. that. Um. But Solus gets a very like, and here's a dude named Solus who he's he's an apostate mage and he was just yeah. kind of hanging Let's, out yeah. and stuff. He uh, so something that's happening in this fight is like they are in the middle of fighting a bunch of demons that are coming out of one of these small like there's the breach which is this big thing in the sky and then there's these small mm-hmm. rifts that are kind of all around the world. And Solus grabs your hand and that marks that's on your hand yes. and realize and shows that you can close them using that. Um, and that's when he tells us that he's been here as a sort of, like, consultant of, like, fade magic, trying to figure out what's going on, uh, that there's, they seem to be chill with him being an apostate, like, he wasn't part of, he wasn't even part of the Circle Rebellion, he was just kind of here, and, uh, knows things about this type of magic that nobody else really does. I, I will say that this whole season is just going to have a very weird pall over it because we we are trying to adhere to the idea that there might be people who are listening to this podcast who have not played this game before and we don't want to go and spoil things about it. For definitely times we're going to be sitting here and being like, oh, hey, this is kind of weird, isn't it? Look what's going <laughs> on here. Oh, wow. That's that's strange. <laughs> um and this is one of Convenient. those times. <laughs> yeah. What a coinky dink. Here's Solus next to a rift. Um, Could you be any more fucking obvious? I know, right? Like, yeah. It, it's like when you watch The Prestige the second time around, right? And you're just sitting there like, I am such a moron. Like, uh, I should have listened to the exposition butler when he told me about what the theme of the movie was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michael Caine. Uh, for ex- that's what we need in Dragon Age Inquisition is Michael Caine, the exposition butler, to come in and be like, this one's about closing the thing in the sky. <laughs> you know, Master Wayne, sometimes demons come out of the sky. They just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> um, anyway. I know, right? Uh, so <laughs> we, we continue on ahead and uh we finally meet back up with Liliana who somehow got ahead of us so I kind of missed how that one happens uh because I'm pretty sure she was behind us when we left but Liliana's got some uh magic and gets there before we do and uh she's carried up by her birds look Leliana's just that cool all right Leliana just just does what Liliana wants to do uh 
and also a real asshole named high chancellor roderick is also Mm -hmm. here who's basically the dude that saw all of his friends die and be like well i guess i'm the highest ranking asshole now so i get to be in charge of the chantry um what's that what's that uh what's that fucking thing that i think it was like a jack not jack bauer who the fuck plays Kiefer sutherland played that mm-hmm. he was in that show it was like designated um designated, designated survivor. survivor can you know that's a real thing right well i know but like that was like the <laughs> okay thing i'm that just came to my i mind. wanted to double check i just wanted to be really sure i was like you know they do that that's like a real had, thing <laughs> there was like a path i had to take to remember the term for that so i was like <laughs> yeah yeah high chancellor roderick the designated survivor of mm-hmm. of the chantry who by the way oftentimes it seems like the designated survivor is the person chosen who they just don't want around them you know it's it's more of a case of hey you know we die but it also means we don't got to be around high chancellor roderick anymore so you know like all's even (laughs) um Mm. this is the dude that has kind of let's say taken the lead in terms of the local chantry forces and uh we have kind of a split here in terms of how we want to approach the Uh, temple of the sacred ashes we can either take a mountain path and which some scouts went up but have not reported back yet uh, which could theoretically be faster but could also uh be a little bit more dangerous or we uh we can just charge ahead and and storm the gates and I don't know why you'd choose that option, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, I mean, you want to see Cullen? Yeah, if you want to see Cullen a little bit earlier than you normally would. Yeah. I mean, that is an interesting aspect of this, I guess, is that you get to, like, get this cool cutscene where you get to meet Cullen and all that, but it's very much like the uh, the choice you make in, at the end of Dragon Age 2 where it's like, do you want to use the cool like mage distraction or do you want to just charge in there with your sword out like the Templars? And I was definitely like, I'm going to take the mountain path. Uh, even though that theoretically results in the death of soldiers or whatever. I don't know. So here's a thing that still to this day kind of gets under my skin about Inquisition mm-hmm. um, so when we get here Cassandra looks to us and is like what would you want to do like this oh, fucking yeah. nobody yeah. that like has no like short of having this thing on their hand has no like real significance to anything that's going on like suddenly <laughs> well, you do have the thing on your hand <laughs> but like here's an issue I've never really been able to reconcile with Inquisition despite all the interesting things I think it does with role playing and like, really letting you craft the character in a way that no really Bioware game has ever really done. I feel like making the character, like, the chosen one that everyone follows and leads is one of the more unearned things in this game. Just because, I hate to use this term, but, like, there's some Mary Sue-ass shit happening in this game. Where suddenly, <laughs> okay, like, say you've got this character, like mine, who is... I know, you're, not, you're all, like, not wrong. You're, you are not wrong. Okay, I'll, like, I'll give you so, that. This person that was, you know, part of the circle, like, just this random fucking dude that was in the Rebel Mages, coming out here, suddenly being in charge and, like, able to, like, command uh, all these people that, like, theoretically have, like, way more experience in battle than he does. And then, like, not, like, I don't need to get into specifics of, like, how these things happen, but, like, there's a point where suddenly we're, like, in, we're in uh, Orlais doing, like, these, like, really, like, 
uh, cutthroat like politics and ballroom dancing and like smoozing with all the nobles and like this why would why would my character know how to do any of this shit why would he be like this person that can just basically be whatever he needs to be in the moment i feel and, in that in that mm. specific thing i feel like that was very much your character is kind of you know putting on a mask let's say <laughs> to use a very blunt analogy for what that situation mm. is um, well, sure, but it's just like, and, and I, I agree with you that they definitely yeah. do are like, hey, you know, your character has kind of stumbled into greatness here, but I do feel like there is enough room in dialogue choices and stuff that you can be this reluctant leader, that you can be this character who's very unsure of themselves, and but at the end For of sure. the day, like you do still have to be the person that steps up. Because I mean, one, that's the game doesn't work if you don't do that, but also. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't know. It's that it's that thing of like, well, what else are you going to do? You have this thing in your hand that sure seems like it hurts, and yeah, a lot of people who are looking to you for leadership because of it and all that. I find like the there's some where, interesting. Uh, sorry, you go you go ahead. It's just one of the things where like I feel like the scale of the game doesn't necessarily match like the reach of the person you are when you start. Because like mm, okay. say Mass Effect, like you kind of. You know, Shepard is, like, a person of, like, some renown by the time you start Mass Effect. And there feels like a very natural progression in that character's, like, influence and power. And I never feel like he or she went out of, sort of, like... I never felt like they were dragged into a role that they never initially fit. Um, where, so, like, with Inquisition, like we talked about before, this is where the game kind of gets on that scale of, like being, you know, for lack of a better comparison, like a Mass Effect 1, where you're establishing all these different, uh, like, uh, conflicts and factions in ways that they relate to each other in a way that they didn't before. Because, like, Origins is, like, very much, like, you've got these pillars of missions that you gotta do, mm-hmm. and they have very insular conflicts that you deal with, and then you move on. Uh, Dragon Age 2 is this very, you know, singular thing, where, you know, it's all about Kirkwall, so, like, Hawk the scale of, like, what Hawk does doesn't really feel that out of reach. Where Inquisition, you put this character who is, like, depending on depending on what your background is, starts out this fucking nobody that suddenly is, like, commanding, uh, like, the, the most influential force in the Dragon Age universe at that point. Well, and I then, mean, like, we're, we're skipping a couple steps to go from, like, where this character starts out to where they are when they fully become the Inquisitor. And all well, that. right, but, like... I just don't know that... It feels like it jumped from Mass Effect 1 to Mass Effect 3 scale very fast, I think, is where I'm kind of landing here. I, I don't disagree with that. I think that's maybe what we're talking about in a future episode, like when, once yeah. we actually yeah. get to the part where they become the Inquisitor and all that. Right. But, but I, I think it's just like at the beginning right here is where you start to get a sense that like this character who doesn't really have any place being in places that they are suddenly is handed power very quickly and weird oh, ways I, that I think are just like the, the sort of like the, what's the word? Like the Bioware, um, I don't know, it's like the Bioware thing. And I feel like the levels of influence a character is given that quickly, like we are technically like maybe 20 minutes into the game, feels very weird. And it feels very indicative of like the places where that character feels like a kind of catch-all for 
multiple different versions of that character that could be in other people's heads. And yeah, we can kind of make that maybe like maybe a recurring conversation, but this is like the first instance of it being like, you really want me to do this? This dude that not 10 minutes ago you thought was responsible for this? Well, in, really? this, in this specific situation, it's more like you are the person they, like the whole goal of what's going on right now is to get your hand to the breach, right? And so they're really more asking like, we have no idea if this is going to work. Like, there's definitely a tone of uh, this could be suicide. Like we are running into a pack of demons and we don't know what's on the other side yet. And we don't even know if this will work. So they're kind of just going like, I don't know, like, which way do you want to go? Because uh, we've got two different options and everyone's split. So how about the hand that we need to get to the breach is the one that decides. <laughs> um, and we've already had this sort of establishing thing of, of Solus being like, you know, kind of vouching for you and saying that, oh, this, I don't think this person is the one that caused the explosion or anything like that. Maybe it's a little bit different if you're a mage because I feel like they pretty quickly wrote off the potential of me doing it. Whereas I, I seem to remember as a mage that came up a lot more often like, oh, well, he, he's a mage, so he could have done a magic bomb mm -hmm. like Anders. <laughs> um, you know, use that good old like gunpowder and poop. Um, you know, so that's that's the Anders classic right there. Um, anyways, once once we get beyond the the demons, either way, we decide whether we go to save the scouts or whether we go to meet Cullen. I save the scouts because you know they're they're scouts. They're cool. Got to keep our scouts alive. They're doing a tough job, and they're also yeah. fighting like demons and shit. You know, like soldiers signed up to fight demons. Scouts just signed up to scout. <laughs> um. And we get to the Temple of the Sacred Ashes, um, and man, this place is filled with red lyrium, which is already a strong sign, just a really good sign that good things are happening here. Um, and once we reach the rift, uh, we get a vision of what is maybe the most unintentionally funny thing I've ever seen in a Dragon Age game. I'm just going to put this out there again. Uh we kind of get the reason some of the reason for why the inquisitor has this mark on their hands and it's that we stumble into this weird ritual in progress as a dark figure who we do not know yet and the divine uh who's kind of being like ritual sacrificed and our character just kind of stumbles in and ken I, I honestly, I cannot remember if there is a better storyline justification for why our character shows up in this moment. All I know is that was hilarious to me because I totally pictured my Inquisitor just being like, hey, so is this the bathroom? I'm looking for the bathroom and it's Corypheus. Like, doing, sorry to say that we've already talked about the villain of this game is Corypheus, but <laughs> we stumbled on the evil villain doing his ultimate sacrifice and all that. And our Inquisitor is just like, I'm looking for the crap. Uh. <laughs> Um, it's like this sitcom I, moment and it just makes me giggle and I just I I liked it a lot. <laughs> I don't um, think there is a better justification. Just throw it out there. That's great then. You know, I love it. I 
that makes me kind of like this narrative even more that our inquisitor is just some person that stumbled into destiny because like that's very i mean that's like very i don't know what, what you want to call it but it's like that's classic like mythology almost like this idea that destiny finds a person and you know it tends to grab them at the weirdest time and they're just their life is consumed by it and all that and i like that idea that our character was just a normal person and they happened to open the wrong door at the wrong time and ended up in all this um i think it also makes what i think is one of the overall themes of inquisition a lot stronger which is without getting too sacrilegious <laughs> um i think inquisition delves into a lot of what like um i don't know if ideology is the right word for it but like what a what a symbol is to a people and like mm -hmm. what um like what faith means and what hope means and what like how people rally around hope and faith and a symbol of collective i don't know collective will and collective resistance and all that and the idea that it can happen from any one of them and it's not this single person but it is a unified force and all that like i don't know that strength that strength is that for me i like that a lot mm. it's also just funny <laughs> um mm. so yeah cassandra's really really ticked off because our inquisitor and and us ourselves clearly do not remember anything about this and uh we quickly go about fighting a giant pride demon while also trying to close the rift and then we finally manage to do it and we close a rift and our mark kind of subsides a little bit and we we come to in a cabin way back in haven we sh i guess we should have mentioned that we were in haven which is kind of mm -hmm. this little town that is near the the temple wait isn't haven yep temper like previously inhabited yeah. by a cult yeah the one with all the creepy cult stuff that was going mm -hmm. on in origins okay so the place where we murdered a lot of people in dragon age origins <laughs> that's where we are now cool i was like i can't believe i only just now made that connection i'm so far into this game <laughs> um and we come to and we are being heralded as the herald of andraste and we get Which this cool not chill by me yeah i mean we get this moment where we walk out and everyone is like kind of forming their ranks to lead us to the chantry and all that like lining up for us and all that it's very strange um so we gotta go to the chantry uh and we gotta talk to some advisors so we get introduced to uh i mean obviously we knew leliana um we do meet I'm sorry, I'm reading the wiki to make sure I've got this right. Yeah, we do meet Cullen and Josephine at this point. Um, so if we had not met Cullen in the previous battle, we now meet Cullen, and then also we meet Josephine, who's kind of an ambassador for the Inquisition. And this is when we learn that uh, Divine Justinia's final orders were to 
reestablish uh, a part of the Chantry called the Inquisition, which is like an ancient order that used to exist and then was kind of, as I understand it, was disbanded and kind of became what the Seekers and also the Templars were and stuff like that. And so now we are reestablishing a branch of the church. So I, I guess at this point, Ken, we should probably talk about the fact that we are working for the church in this game, ostensibly. We are yeah. we are a branch of the church in this game. Hmm. Which I'm sure you're wild about. <laughs> it's It's an interesting thing because you're kinda given like in you know, in the conversations you're having with Cassandra and Liliana and basically everybody, uh, you're given the opportunity to be like, I don't believe that this was holy because like in the vision that we were seeing we saw, you know, this woman that saved us from uh like we were like we were crawling up the you know what what you call it? The, the pile of skulls or whatever uh, in the fade bone mountain people yeah people <laughs> people saw us being helped out of there by a woman who they believed to be Andraste. Um, I just think she had a cool hat. <sighs> all I mean, all the Chantry people have cool hats. I want a cool hat. They're weird rectangle things. Yeah, they look like plague doctors. But without like all the plague doctor stuff, I want the cool, I want the cool hat. It's my goal in this game is cool hat. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you can probably find it somewhere. Um, so you know, we get the opportunity then to be like, we don't agree. Like maybe we don't agree with the church. We don't agree with the notion that, that we were saved by Androsty. That we are some sort of like prophet's not the word I want to use. Just like symbol of the maker. And ultimately, like, the game kind of tries to sell, like, it, it not, not tries, I think it succeeds on selling you that regardless of what you think, people are going to project that onto you anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that goes into what you're talking about, and which I think is one of, like, the really strong themes of this game is, like, faith finds a way no matter what happens, and there's going to be a lot of people kind of, like, having to come to grips with, like, truths that they thought were the case aren't the case and meanwhile we as this person you know from all these possible different backgrounds that maybe are like even cons- uh, considered kind of like uh, sacrilegious or you know against the maker's will that is going to project projected on us anyway and mm-hmm. it's one of like the really interesting role-playing elements of this game is kind of like figuring out where your character fits in all of that like how they feel about it and it, it, it's kind of made I, I usually say that, like, the characters I make in Bioware games are just kind of, like, snapshots of who I was at any point when I played them, but I feel like the more I've uh, both played this game um, in every um, every point in my life that it did, and just kind of, like, seeing the way that it resonates with me kind of universally, my Inquisitor is a very, becomes a very cynical person throughout the game, because mm. I'm, like, I'm not a believer, I don't, that, like, that is both something that I project in, from my real life into this one as well, where... I am watching people be... I, I'm trying to phrase this nicely because I don't want to, like, in, uh, offend anybody that might be listening that is maybe religious. But, like, I am, I am in a scenario where I know, to some extent, the truth of what I am and how I got this got to this point. And I'm watching it kind of being molded and weaponized and kind of, like, used to bolster people's faith. And regardless of what I say, like, no, everyone's going to find some way to kind of uh, justify what they think I am, what they think my presence means. And it's, you know, it's a very huge friction between me and Cassandra, 
um, like even very early on here in Haven, to kind of like be vocal about what I believe I am, regardless of what maybe the cons- not, not the consensus, but like uh, what people want me to be. Um, mm-hmm. And it's one of like it's one of the reasons I think like the role playing aspect really. I don't think it would have worked in the same way as uh, if it had been this way in Origins or even two, by allowing you that nuance to kind of react to that idea in ways that can be you know either you ignore it entirely or like you're like me who's like pushing against it every chance he gets, or if you're a person who's maybe likes that idea of being chosen by the maker, um, that you can approach that specifically in so many ways is one of the most fascinating uh, sort of really frank discussions of religion I think most video games ever do. And it, like, not to skip too far ahead, I mean, it's skipping to the end, my, like, projecting my, like, very anti-chantry, like, doesn't believe in the maker viewpoints, there's a very, like, there's a point where a character is proclaiming that they are a god and that I must battle them, and it's like, I can just say, like, I get a special dialogue option that says, I don't believe in gods. And then the fight mm-hmm. starts. And it's just a really, I think it's one of the best uh, particular themes and plot lines in this game in how it lets you really express your, uh, your ideas and your beliefs in a way that is, the world reacts to it in a way that nothing really like that has happened before in Dragon Age, or even Mass Effect, really. Yeah, I, um, my... My feeling on faith in this game is that, like you said, it just allows so much room for you to explore what that means. And, like, one of the most interesting things I think that this game does, like, in a higher level sense, is that you can start this game as a very devout character. Mm -hmm. And then due to the events of what happens especially very early on you can drastically change how you feel yep. about that due to or vice certain... versa yeah yeah and it, you can suddenly have things change or yeah maybe you have a situation that maybe makes you think that oh you know some of this might actually be real and i should be taking this more seriously yeah um but the things like for me the theme of inquisition has always been like what is faith to different people mm-hmm. and like is it is it a political tool is it a um you know governing tool is it a thing about power is it a thing about community is it a thing about is faith you know no matter what labels or words or theology we ascribe to it is it a way for people to band together in times of need under something that they feel is so high like so great it is above any earthly like qualm and that's Mm. kind of where inquisition sits for me is like the idea that a lot of characters in thetis needed something that is so above the daily mortal petty squabbles that they had no choice but to set their arms down and band together and that's kind of where my inquisitor is sitting right now where they're like um i I think it is again very interesting to play this as an elf because i've received a lot of very interesting dialogue options around like 
you know, people being like, oh, you're the Herald of Andraste, but don't you believe in the old gods and don't you believe yeah. in elven gods instead? Which I think is a very interesting way of framing it. Especially if you go down the Templar route like I did, you definitely get interrogated on that a lot um, in a way that like then forced my character to start to, I don't know, codify what it is they believed or didn't believe and all that kind of stuff, uh, which has just been like really cool on my end. But uh, ultimately, I feel like my Inquisitor, and I guess by extension, my beliefs on all this is that no matter what, like, if this shiny green thing on my hand can unite people and end conflicts that are causing bloodshed across all of Thetis then that's a net win <laughs> and <laughs> we should we should try for that um, but also like that crushing feeling of what if they eventually find out that I'm just somebody who opened the wrong door at the wrong time and that's why I'm not like some chosen person but then what does it mean to be chosen? You know who? What is the criteria for being chosen? This is it just being in the right place at the right time. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's a lot of interesting stuff that's been really interesting to dig into. Um, and we'll get to some of the more, say, broader lore implications <laughs> the mm. further on we get. But for right now, um, you know, it's interesting that you brought up previously the idea of oh, why is this person suddenly in charge? Because I didn't have it before at that specific intersection that you brought it up at but once we get the war table and we're kind of greeted with the advisors and we're given all these different places to where we can deploy forces and all that stuff that's when i was like okay why do i have power <laughs> like <laughs> i get that i'm like the herald of andraste or whatever but i thought that was more of like uh a, a title rather than like a responsibility um but all of a sudden now they're telling me where to send forces and who to talk to and sending me out in the name of the inquisition to go get horses and stuff like that yeah. um and i guess we should talk briefly about the war table which is that like meta gaming level of dragon age which is that you can embark on these different missions that have timers and things like that uh, and you can approach them using the different approaches that your advisors have, which are either like forces, which is uh, colon, which is usually a very like, let's throw soldiers at the problem and see what happens. <laughs> and sometimes that's the right thing. And sometimes it's the wrong thing. Um, you have like Leliana, who is the uh, whispers, you know, a lot of like spy stuff. And you know, sometimes, I think sometimes it's easy to get that mixed up with josephine's which is yeah. like the political machinations you know she uses like one over the table one under the table that's yeah like that's the, that's the yeah, easiest way that's that's a really really good way of putting it um whereas like you know josie might be like oh let's uh talk to our friends and get them to influence people at the court or i think one of my favorite ones was like oh lady whoever has a new lover why don't we inform or bring that up at a dinner party or whatever or something like that whereas mm. Liliana's is like well we could kill somebody <laughs> we could just we could stab him instead yeah we could like sabotage a caravan to blow up with one of anders poop bombs again so like um yeah it's i so let me let me say this two things from the outset one i like the idea that is at play here which is like taking 
three very different approaches to different uh, situations, having to really think about which one best suits uh, the the question at hand, and also kind of rewards you, and and also like the war table is the way that Bioware ties in a lot of previous game stuff. Mm-hmm. So like the only way that the Dragon Age 2 decision of whether uh, Sebastian is mad at you or not plays out is that your mission is either like send resources to help the rebuilding of Kirkwall, which is being underseen by the Prince of Starkhaven, or uh, send forces to help destroy the rebels of Kirkwall as the Prince of Starkhaven is like burning the city down. Um, That's like the way that you interact with a lot of what Mm -hmm. is ultimately minor tie-ins like there are some big ways that the previous games tie in to inquisition but some of them kind of just get relegated to war table missions which are kind of cool but are also kind of like oh so i just read about it in text and then i make a choice and then i mean i think it how satisfying that is will largely depend on whether you're a person that maybe likes to read codex entries and uh, like all these little notes and letters that you can find throughout the game, mm-hmm. um, it's not ideal, but it is like there. I have to have an awareness that, like, if I wanted Bioware to animate every possibility of every decision that I make and really, you know, give it that sense of production value, the game would cost way more, mm-hmm. and people would be overworked. And I need to like. Luckily, I don't feel like I personally had anything that I was like, super invested in relegated to that stuff. Um, but, you know, take what, take what we can get and maybe just don't expect any like any actual video game that exists in the world to be the sort of like wish fulfillment thing that no, really, no. you know. Especially like one of my other themes of Inquisition and like what I think about this game is that it is the it's the grand unification of all dragon age like basically bioware said okay at this point we know that we want dragon age to be some sort of like fantasy world that we can do a lot of different things in but that means at some point we've got to stop doing all these kind of like side stories and stuff like that and create some sort of flashpoint that we can have a base at and that's what inquisition feels like to me is where they grabbed all these strings and threads and just found a way to get them all to kind of coalesce at a similar mm. point and develop like the right conflict that would somehow unite all these things so that way they can be neatly tied off and then from here you know there are a lot of places like once we get to the end of inquisition that the series could go and and like issues that it could start to address and stuff like that but it also just kind of feels like the grand unification of every problem that has been taking place in theta yeah. so far um the other thing about war table missions is they take time to complete real world Real-time. time yeah. and i already modded my game to not have the timers <laughs> look i was i was at a point where i was like i want to finish a mission tonight and once i do this mission some of the war table stuff will not be finishable and I, there being timers on this thing just feels so weird to me like right it doesn't feel like it 
because like ostensibly that's supposed to be like a kind of like a live service thing, like a thing to get you to come back to the game, you know, at different intervals. But I just don't feel like that's something involved enough that Mm-mm. it accomplishes that. And you know, like the game stands fine on its own. I don't feel like you needed to have the thing that was supposed to kind of like occupy my headspace, like being like, oh, I need to go be sure I check that in. Like there are literally some of these that take twenty four hours, and mm-hmm. I don't. I wonder if you can go in to your PS4 settings and like change the you clock. You can change the and, clock. You can change the clock. Mm, yeah. Even so, like that doesn't like the payoff of these things doesn't feel like something that inclines me to do that. Um, I don't know. Like that, that particular thing is weird to me. Like I feel like it would maybe be better if they had maybe. Uh, Instead of doing like real time, like maybe do like missions, like you know, like, you do one mission and then it's be done, or um, you know, like oh, if they like, I see what you're saying, yeah, or you do like, like you, X number of like activities, yeah, in the world or whatever, and that way it feels like kind of more in universe that way because like, why? What is 24 hours of my time in the game's time? Because that can I could blow through like three different story missions in that time, which ostensibly takes you know, in-universe, like, three weeks or so, and... Mm-hmm. But it all matters how how long it has been in my world. I don't think that's how... That doesn't feel like it lines up with the game at large to me. So, two things. I think the the reason why they didn't go that route is because then you can end up in a situation, because then you have, like, a, a zero-sum, right? You have a point where you could run out of things. Potentially, you could run out of things to do and would not have enough things to do on the map to progress... A mission. So say like you had to do one activity on the map to progress something. Well, if you've done every, if there's theoretically someone out there that has been trying to hundred percent that game, but maybe like didn't have a mission set for the proper amount of time, didn't min max it correctly, they could end up in a weird place. And I can understand at least that. But I think the other flip side is like as I mentioned before, like andromeda had something similar where you could send out these strike teams but the flip there was that that stuff was purely for resources like it was very much a hey you get things out of this whereas inquisition actually ties like some progression stuff into it like i'm at the point now where i can start um i'm looking for a person who can uh, teach me higher level specializations and different classes and stuff like that or I can find a person who will help me craft better things and, and all that kind of stuff and like that's very much progression in the game and and like you mentioned it's also passive in Andromeda you could go on those missions and you basically right. play like a multiplayer mission and that was kind of their way of incorporating the multiplayer element into the single player element but right. without that here and again, like, is it worth addressing the fact that I'm honestly trying to remember? Is it Inquisition that was supposed to have multiplayer, or does it have multiplayer? It, and I it does just, have multiplayer. Yeah, I literally never I've, remember because I don't know a single person who has ever played it. I've never touched it, and that like, it's it's wild to me that it, that exists because you think somebody would talk about it at some point. Like, that's the thing that people forget existed. Like. Mass Effect, conversely, like, you know, that was what weird at the time. What do you do like, when they're like, oh, I'm, I'm like people Googling f- this while you talk. Like, what do you do in it? I think it's just similar to Mass Effect. Like, you have, like, waves, and you make a make you make you a party of people that have their roles, and, you know, yeah. But I've literally never heard anyone talk about it before. And 
especially not six six years removed. Like I'm, like I feel like if I tweeted out like, "Hey, who remembers that Dragon Age Inquisition had multiplayer?" I probably would get a bunch of people who were like, "I fucking completely forgot about that," because like, it wasn't like Mass Effect Three did like the very underhanded thing of like it was required at least initially to like access all the endings and, um, you know, like it, it affected the single player. Like there was an idea in your head that you needed to do it to get the best possible ending, you know, the fake best possible ending that doesn't actually exist. And Inquisition just doesn't implement it that way, which is, you know, good in, you know, in the long run, I think that's a good thing, because, like, it wasn't the thing that people felt, like, an obligation to have to play, but also just, like, since nobody felt the obligation to play it, nobody did. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading really quick, like, a summary of what this is. And it feels like a thing that is just here to exist. Because it doesn't really have a story tie. You're just kind of an agent of the Inquisition. And you play as one of the various, like, characters. It looks like there are, like, some cool, like, different versions of characters that you can play. So you can... um, There are, like, different mages. You can play, like, a Sarah boss, which is kind of cool. Um... Oh, there's a duelist character, an alchemist character. Okay. And, and like a Templar or a Silent Sister. But there's no real reason, like in the single player version, to play it. And then the only progression is that once you reach like max level, you can basically prestige a character to get a permanent point in something and then just keep leveling them up that way. And there's like a leaderboard, but even the, and it sounds like from the sounds of it this this is just super repetitive too anyways yeah. i brought the, i brought that up because maybe you know that's a way that they could have done the war table is to be like oh well you know you can send forces to go take care of this or you can take care of it yourself through either like cunning or forces or whatever but i, don't, I like the idea that it's setting up that the inquisition is a massive organization you cannot do everything yourself you need to delegate at some point but again also like at this point we are just the herald of andraste it's kind of weird that we're being handed this it makes a little bit more sense once we get to a different part of this game where we are kind of this leader of a faction and not just some rando (laughs) um anyways once we've cleared that, we get to go to everyone's favorite place in Dragon Age Inquisition, the Hinterlands. Which we will promptly leave after doing something. But Here's um, some advice for you, for you players. Get out of here as fast as you can. Yeah, so one thing that I feel the game, like, it does tell you, but it, playing it again, I actually feel like the game does push you to go do valreo as soon as you can uh but i still feel like it's not even necessarily it's not necessarily that the game wants you to stay in the hinterlands it's that people are conditioned to play open world games a certain way and to like clear things off the map and to be fair i think there's a lot of open world games that have conditioned them in that way to where there are like points of no return or like Mm -hmm. you know it's just it's an ubisoft game you gotta clear all the icons in this part of the map then you go to the next part of the map clear all the icons there um so in that respect i get it but like 
seriously this the game does not i feel really get started until you have gotten through all the val Royo stuff and all the haven stuff and yep. all that and there are very few things that will be locked out once you have gone through that there's actually a surprising amount of stuff that does not get locked out so yeah just, just get out just get trust out. us but we do meet a couple cool people in the hinterlands uh we meet chief scout harding oh my god best character the best harding rules man i just big, never big fan of harding i i hope that she's a character that i come around on because i've never seen the, like the appeal like she's nice like she's not offensive to me but like i've never understood that like she's this character that people really latch onto, and so hopefully i will find out what the big deal is today or this this playthrough she's just like a super chill character like you just show up and everyone else is all like oh my god it's the herald of andraste or oh my god you know or or they're the opposite and they're like uh you're the herald of andraste not much or whatever like but harding just shows up and harding's like hey what's up you know we're hanging out there's some weird stuff going on here let me tell you what's going on real quick i'm gonna make a fun joke you and i are pals and like takes off and also like this touches on a thing that struck me about this game that we'll talk about more in another episode but like you can flirt with harding and she will flirt back but it's not like a romance or anything Mm -hmm. you just kind of like playfully flirt with each other and that's it and i think you can try to pursue something and she'll just eventually like rip off you and be like nah i'm not i'm not into that but she can just be this like cool chill pal that you have that just kind of like shows up is like hey guess what we're in these marshes it's weird there's like demons here and shit don't go in the swamp it's a bad idea anyways good luck inquisitor you'll do great like i don't know super positive quippy a little sarcastic that's a sort voice, of energy we need in inquisition Hillis, the voice actress of liara yes that too that probably helps <laughs> <laughs> um and we also, if you, I mean, look, so Ken, let's, let's get this out of the way. We've got Dennett here, who is the Red Cliff Horse Master, who we can do a bunch of quests for to eventually get horses for the Inquisition, which means not only do we ostensibly have, like, horses in the theoretical sense, and we can potentially recruit this guy to join us at Haven and all that, but it means that we get a horse. That being said, Ken, I don't think I've ever ridden a horse in this game. I feel like I did in my completionist playthrough just to like get more like you know for expediency um I don't I just don't generally get around to it because like they do enough and like with like fast travel mechanics like you you, know, you mm-hmm. make camps that are in these big these big open worlds that are close enough to anywhere you need to get that I never felt like I needed to get a horse and like mm-hmm. I could get anywhere on foot um and your character like I guess moves fast enough in general like i don't really feel like i needed the horse so i don't know it's i'm sure it's nice to some people that maybe don't have like the patience for that and that's totally valid um but i've never really preferred and especially like you get into fights you or, like you can end up in combat fairly uh suddenly so i just kind of like prefer to already be standing and like weapon drawn and ready to go so mm-hmm. it's the weird thing you know i went there i went to red cliff i did all these quests I talk to this guy, I learn all about his life. I finally go up, I find the horse. I only have one question left, Ken. You know what that is? Mm. Why the long face? 
<laughs> anyway. <laughs> what Mother Giselle? What about her? Mother Giselle, um, who has... I, I was trying to place what kind of accent they were going for. It was like... I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was it, like... It's it's the Val Royale. Once you get to Val Royale, like, everyone has an accent. Like, like the Chantry people have, have an accent in Val Royale as well. Because, like, the... the Oh, I can't remember her name. Um, Havara, yeah, also has kind of an accent that seems like vaguely French almost, but it's it's like all of a sudden they just in the eleventh hour introduce this new accent into Thetis, and I was like, oh, okay, so we're not doing like the typical fantasy like mildly British accent anymore. We've got like, mm. oh, potentially there might be regional dialects and regional accents and stuff like that in this game. That's interesting. I'd like to know more about that if possible. I mean, in the game's defense, we haven't really expanded beyond, like, a a relatively small area of the universe until now. And I feel like once we get into more of the Orlesian stuff, we'll start to see that, that there are, like... To to be kind of meme, I guess, Ferelden is a lot of, like, farmers and stuff like that, so you get a lot of very rural characters and stuff like that. Whereas, like, once you get into Orlesian, you have, like, a lot of nobility characters who will have a little bit more of, like, they enunciate and they speak in a way that is befitting of a noble and stuff like that. It's it's It kind of helps with the whole, once you get into, like, the, the ballroom mission and all that kind of stuff where you, you kind of get into, like, oh, these characters are really into the pomp and circumstance a little bit. They like the... They're, they put on airs and, and pretenses and stuff like that. It's all about the, um, you know, presentation and ostentatiousness of it all. But mm. I just thought it was interesting. I was like, oh, cool. There's like a, that's an accent. That's, that's a different way that a character is speaking in this game. And it's most notably it was like, is a human character that's speaking differently. It's yeah. not like, oh, hey, the Canari have this weird, like way of talking that is different from humans. But here is like a different way that a human character can speak. So that's something I've been noticing the voice acting in Inquisition is I feel like it's just more varied on the whole and it feels less mm. um God's what's the word like mono well not homogenous, but like mono audio or something like that. I don't know, it all sounds the same. There's probably like a German word that would describe exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> um But uh we talked to Mother Giselle, and Mother Giselle is basically like, once you build up enough prestige, uh, once people kind of know who you are, you should go to Val Royale, and uh, maybe, you know, they'll listen to you, and you could get the Chantry on your side. So then we got to gain some power, which is one of the other metagame resources in this, which is every time we do stuff on the map, which is like seal a fade rift or do a quest or establish a camp which are like these little hubs of fast travel slash potion restoration slash resting slash everything uh scattered around the map uh we get power and power can be spent to open up new areas on the map uh so we have to get a handful of power and then we can go to valrio uh and here is kind of where i think the where we start to actually move the story forward a little bit because i know mm. we just kind of breeze through the hinterlands but really you're there for a little bit doing all the different quests and stuff depending on how long you stay there um like i did a thing with solace where we went through a cave and looked at some like artifacts and stuff like that and i did a whole thing about like the scout that i mentioned before and there's 
uh, a woman whose husband is killed and you have to go like find the Templars who did it and kill them and take the amulet back to the, the woman and all that. Um, there's mm. like a lot of just little yeah. stories that you can get caught up in pretty easily. Yeah, I generally, when it comes to getting like uh, these points as quickly as I possibly can, I usually uh, stick with like filling rifts and establishing camps. But um, mm-hmm. something that you brought up, we maybe should at least touch on, is that the mages and Templars are just like fighting each other in the fucking streets right oh, now. Oh yeah, like, we've barely talked about that, haven't we? Um, yeah. Yeah, at and this I mean, point... granted, like you know, that is more of like a next week thing, but just kind of like a, a, for the well, for the sake of the, the table setting episode. That's think... kind of like the state of things at this point. Like the, yeah. you know, the circles rose up. The Templars, I, I think they're supposed to like have. I, th- I think t- to some degree they are disenfranchised from the Chantry. They have completely uh, left the Chantry. Okay. They um, are completely separated from the Chantry at this point. They are in so it's just like division. Yeah. Right. So it's just like them just going at it the whole time. So like the the conclave that we were at, that everything sort of went haywire at. Um, was supposed to be kind of like a piece, like like a, a point where they would kind of settle things, um, mm-hmm. and that obviously didn't work out. So that is how that those particular factions are right now. So, just and I think it's important to establish that like right now is because as we go to Val Royo, um, you know we we uh, walk up and there's already. Uh, an inquisition scout who informs you that templars are waiting and then once you get further in we find the revered mother havara who uh is already kind of leading an angry mob against us and is declaring us the murderer of justinian mm-hmm. and all that we can kind of like try to fight it a little bit and like argue back and all that but she always kind of turns it back on us and then lord seeker lucius shows up with uh, sir barris who will become important later in my playthrough uh they show up and lord seeker lucius kind of taunts everyone like he down talks the chantry and the inquisition and then he straight up decks havara in the mouth and walks away in a way that i was like okay he's evil that's good to know um yeah and uh cassandra is if she's i think i guess she would have to be there at this point like talk about like how he was once a very noble man and like that she um like knew him as she was uh, going under uh, her training, and uh, so she's just like something is off here. Yeah, um, and we can kind of go up and talk to Havara after she has been decked uh, mm-hmm. to kind of get some context on where the chantry is at, and basically like it's in disarray. They're going. You can even offer the idea of like, hey, why doesn't the chantry like side with the Inquisition and like work with us? And they're basically like, we're so in disarray and everyone's just politically positioning themselves to become the next divine and all that, right. that there's bait. Cause I, I, we're starting to get a glimpse of what this is, but like the contest to become the next divine is like, what if the Pope was mixed with like the tutors where everyone is like scheming and mm. positioning themselves and stuff like that. Um, it's very, very like, fantasy politics um mm. yeah. and she also uh, what's up well you, you, you keep going no you go ahead, go ahead. i was gonna say like you know like her also asks like as she's telling us in how she is like I mean, oh, she just yeah. got humiliated in front of everybody like she uh does ask like are you chosen by the maker and then as an opportunity mm-hmm. for you to maybe if that is the way that you're playing this kind of like maybe console her a little bit and be like 
there's a reason that all of this is happening to everybody, uh, because I am chosen by the maker. Or you can feel like me as like, nah, I'm just some dude, and I'm not particularly interested in how much of disarray you're in right now. Yeah, I think I went with an option that was basically like, does it even matter? Like, I've got this anchor, whether I want it mm-hmm. or not, so like, I've just kind of got to go with what's going on. Yeah. Um, but as as we are then leaving, there are a couple different things that happen. Um, an arrow <laughs> comes flying in with a message that starts one quest, uh, a friend of Red Jenny. A messenger runs up to us and lets us know that uh, an enchanter would like to meet us. And then as we exit the city, uh, we meet Grand Enchanter Fiona, who invites us to Redcliffe to meet with the mages. Uh, and yeah. I, One of the things I liked about the conversation with Fiona is that you can raise the point that like, hey, you like she she gets all like, it's suspicious that Lucius wasn't at the conclave and all that. Maybe he knew what was going to go down. He can be like, uh, you weren't at the conclave either. Yeah. <laughs> and she can be like, oh, well, that's because I suspected something might happen. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, uh, you want to know a weird thing real quick before we get off of um, Fiona right now? Yes. That's Alistair's mom. Wait, really? They just never really addressed that. What? No. What? Yeah, it was in um. Which which one was that? Dragon. Uh, Dragon Age: The Calling, which was a novel. What? Yeah. It has been confirmed this... that that child is Alistair. Just never really comes up. Never really. Fiona said she might be the first warden who does not have to go on the calling. Oh, she's a warden. Wow, that's reading this wiki entry. There is so many levels of Fiona that I have not experienced in playing this game. Okay, this is some homework, I guess. I don't know. I end up murdering her, so that's the thing that happens. <laughs> um, uh. Anyways. Anyway. Oh, <laughs> uh, we know that we've got a pick. Um, so after we do all this, we, we head back to Haven and discuss with the advisors and they're basically like, okay, well, it's, it's clear what we got to do is our next step. We've got to either talk to the mages or talk to the Templars. And this is kind of where I wanted to bring up the, like, they give you pretty good reason to want to and maybe it was just because of the like i'd already kind of voiced that i was interested in talking to the templars but they kind of give you a good reason for being like hey um something really seems up there and it seems like a bunch of templars running amok with like no leadership and a dude at the top who's just punching out clerics it's maybe not a good thing so they kind of pose it as like you should go in there to restore order before they just become this force that will sweep across Thetis like killing every mage they can find so I feel like they do a good job of justifying it even if you are pro mage like the idea of bringing the Templars back under control is like very appealing but also like mm. their reasoning for obviously their reasoning for talking to the mages is that like oh well you know whoever we recruit is going to give us the magical power we need to seal this breach for good mm. right and 
the Templars can do that, but mages are like, they are magic. Whereas Templars are kind of like conduits for magic. Um, but then the flip side of that is they're like, oh, they just want to invite you to a castle to hang out? That sounds like a trap. Like, <laughs> mm. um, that's kind of where we leave off. And I think we're going to leave it there, but we're going to talk very briefly about the other four companions that we can recruit at this point. Um, so we can start with Blackwall, because his is pretty straightforward. Um Leliana like approaches us and is basically like uh, her spies have located a gray warden wandering the hinterlands going by the name Blackwall, which she notes is interesting because the gray wardens at this point are kind of vanishing. Like no one knows where they are or what they're yeah. doing, including obviously the warden of origins, if they're still alive. Um, and so the idea that convenient, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, this <laughs> Who knows what could possibly be happening? <laughs> um, so a gray warden just kind of hanging out in the hinterlands by himself—that's something we should look into. So we go over there and we help him kill. We help him uh, and some farmers he has been teaching to fight kill some bandits, and uh, he's very much like—I guess we'd say distrusting at first, but then he's yep. like, "Oh, you know." I've been looking for Grey Wardens. I haven't heard from the Grey Wardens in a while. I want to know what's up, so I guess I'll team with you. Yep. He also, like, as I as I understood the scene, he was, uh, like, trying to recruit them for the Wardens, and then it was just like, no, go back to your families. Yeah. That's uh, um, not Warden Protocol. I mean, he talks about this a little bit in later dialogues. I feel like they talk about it a lot just around Blackwall and stuff, but the idea that gray wardens have as much power as there is like a blight that is at your doorstep so like mm. if there are darkspawn knocking down the door then gray wardens can kind of do whatever they want but if they're not then there's a lot more leniency and also i get the sense that like the gray wardens are not necessarily keen on conscripting dozens of people when they don't need to because as we know by this point there is like a shelf life on a gray warden let's mm. say um and so the idea of just conscripting people without any need is not so maybe like they take in recruits but they don't like go out there and intentionally like force people into being a gray warden mm. um blackwall is an interesting character I'm interested to see more about the because he was definitely a character that did not like resonate with me when I first played this game mm -hmm. and I'm interested to see whether that changes this time around for me but one character who did certainly resonate with me and I feel like everybody who has played this game loves this character Iron Bull oh my god Iron Bull's Hell the yeah. freaking best man <laughs> uh, Iron Bull's real up there for me in terms of just fantastic hangout Bioware character who also has surprising depth in his story and in the I, I guess like in in the greater sense of what is going on both here in in this game and in um trespasser but mm -hmm. we we get a message from krem who is uh lieutenant i guess i'm not good with like ranks i don't or whatever remember the rank kind of second in command to bull yeah. and krem basically tells us like hey the bull wants to talk to you the bull is the leader of the bull's chargers 
uh, it's really good mercenary company and iron bull is offering you a deal to like get help and you should take notice because usually like people approach iron bull for help and right. not vice versa so like the fact that bull wants to talk to you is is important so um we get there and help we go to the storm coast which by the way i guess we haven't talked about the other areas that we could open up here which is like the fell marsh and the oh, storm coast yeah. um which are just kind of like side areas that different quests take place in but are not necessarily like story critical there's mm. just kind of things to do here that will give you power and like at least on the storm coast there's a cool little story about uh like you can craft a an emblem that will let you duel this local mercenary company and become the leader of it if you win and stuff like that i did that that was pretty fun but um it's all pretty small in the scheme of things so we, we're not really super addressing that but uh we go to the storm coast and talk to iron bull and he's basically like look i'm gonna be straight up with you i'm a spy <laughs> like yeah. um I, what's the the phrase for it um like the... yeah the uh ben hosrath he's a ben hosrath agent uh for the canary so he is a spy for the canary he's basically been told like hey go infiltrate the inquisition because the canary want to know what's going on there and if we need to like send a bunch of canary over there to stop the world from ending uh because obviously like they are already well aware that the things that are happening could have like global Mm -hmm. consequences uh and and bull basically is like look I'm telling you this so you know up front I can either not join you it is what it is or you can have me join and I promise that I will feed you information that you want to know about things that are happening in the area and I will only feed like non-critical like non-dangerous information to the Ben Hosrith in return because yep. uh, I want to like go kill things with you right. <laughs> um yeah, I think. A... Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say like I, I imagine that that deal is probably not enough for a lot of people. So it makes me wonder just like, what the stats are on like people that recruited bull and that didn't. Um, because I, I think there is like a, a part of people that's like, oh, this is a party character, so I want them on my team. But when you got someone that is like very blatantly telling you that there is like a scenario where I would ostensibly betray you, then that is you know reason to give anybody pause um but it's just like super charming right out of the gate and mm-hmm. um we like voiced by freddie prince jr which is fucking wild to me even six years later um i don't know i'm a big fan of him even like yeah. at, at this point i like i like iron bull's character a lot i think one of the things i like is that normally like spy characters are very very easy to fall into tropes with that you know like have a sneaky spy character and all that kind of stuff but i like the fact that this big giant warrior is also like a spy Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just he's like so straight up about it and he's charming about it like he's like what the bond version of a of a canary warrior would be and i really appreciate (laughs) that um there's some stuff to dig into around krem as a character because krem is like 
intimately tied to Bull and the Chargers and stuff like that. I think we'll probably spend more time on that once we get to Iron Bull's specific uh, episode. But there is some stuff to delve into around that and also like the real life and and like, you know, portrayal stuff around that. Um, Yeah. It'll be interesting to talk about because I remember that was pretty talked about at the time i want to say at least in like critical circles so right um character who gets criticized a lot uh Mm. let's talk about sarah i was gonna say that it's a toss-up between which one you're talking about right now because you could be either of the people that we all okay but i feel like the other character at least me personally i'm coming around to this character a lot but for sarah specifically um we go to meet this friend of red jenny and red jenny so like this has been kind of this red riding hood sort of character throughout all of dragon age there's always been these like hints of the friends of red jenny who are doing these things in the shadows and if you do all the gang missions in dragon age 2 you get like a special dialogue that's like the friends of red jenny thank you for clearing up the crime in kirkwall and all that kind of stuff um here we meet sarah who initially is just kind of like i don't know like tricks us into like killing some guards with her um like there's this dude that we stumble into all right so we kill some mercenaries and stuff like that and we we find this dude who's like a masked man that that has magic and stuff and he's all like oh finally the inquisition has taken note of me i am the great whoever and blah 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 blah. and all of a sudden he just gets shot by an arrow and sarah shows up and she's like hey i'm here that dude was like doing some stuff i wanted you to help me kill him uh i'm a friend of red jenny also here comes some cards and i stole all their pants (laughs) and i really respect the designer and the artist who made this moment happen where it's the same soldiers that you've been fighting for a decent part of the game at this point but none of them have pants on and it's <laughs> the first time i remember like at the time people were like oh sarah's this like meme character and stuff like that it's like lol no pants and stuff like that but i don't know man i just i found it fun it's a fun little yeah. thing that she's like oh, i stole their pants or their breeches no breeches and stuff like that um she's she's a fun character at yeah. first and very like manic pixie girl kind of yeah like quick talking all over the place That's, and that is one thing like they do a really good job of establishing her like i think you know or at least you get a very strong sense of whether or not you're gonna drive with this character by this point yes yeah more so than most of mm-hmm. like these these recruitment because like everyone else kind of has like you know a little not not to say that Sarah doesn't have layers but like you get a very strong sense of who she is and she's very upfront in ways that a lot of other characters aren't like Vivian who will get to totally has her own motives that she's maybe not quite as forward with um where Sarah just like is you what you see is what you get and I'm not huge on her and I wasn't back then and I maybe have warmed up on certain aspects of her now, but um, she's kind of incomprehensible, like that sort of um, like scatterbrained in a way that mm-hmm. is hard to follow, especially when you're 
like kind of like a role playing sense. Like my character, who is like I said, like very cynical, very kind of doesn't like the position he's been put in, having to deal with this person who just kind of like not ever really speaking straight to him. Um, I am she's a character I'm interested to revisit, but I did her like I mean not to I won't get into specifics, but like I did her companion quest today and like didn't. It, may, it resonated with me a little bit differently, but, like, I don't know if my opinion on her as a person has changed much. But, yeah, so we'll get an episode for that. I'm not to the point yet for, like, full disclosure where I'm at. I'm just now starting to do all of the companion quests and stuff, but I've not actually done any of them yet. Um, but with Sarah, I initially liked her a lot as a character. I guess, like, this is probably the point where I can say, like, when I first played this game and I didn't know what the romance options were because I didn't look them up beforehand... Uh, my male mage character definitely tried to romance Sarah because, like, sorry. <laughs> that's, just, that's that's what happened. And that was... there. There's, like, a literal line where she, like, rejects you. She's like, sorry, I just don't like you like that and stuff like that. And I think... I remember... I think I was talking to you about it at the time, Ken. I was like, yeah, you know, I've kind of always played Bioware games and usually when I play a dude character in a Bioware game, I can just kind of romance whatever girl i want and there's very rarely like non-romanceable characters like that mm-hmm. and that was the moment where i was like oh i've yeah. been playing games a certain way and other people have been playing them different ways and i've never really noticed that because i always play them a certain way uh which was eye-opening for me and made sarah as a character just one that was very memorable for me in that way and that i was mm-hmm. like okay cool this is like a character that has changed the way that like has definitely righted a prejudice that i had in my mind uh, right. or, or like the way that i viewed representation in these games mm. uh this time and around think... well yeah you, sorry. You, you keep going because I, I wanted to touch on that but we can you can finish what you're okay, saying yeah. oh, um this time around i'm liking her character for very different reasons yeah. um obviously because that was you know it's that was the first time around but um i like her character in that she's got this very like anti-authority presence like she's she has a great line when you first meet her where she's talking about because you ask her like are you red jenny and she's like we're all red jenny like the the guy that shaves your your head the the kid that fetches your towel the old man sitting on the side of the road you know every single one of us friends of red jenny we're all the downtrodden ones that you never see and we're the ones that are going to overthrow you and stuff like that like she's Mm -hmm. got this very the people will overcome the structures of power and stuff like that. Right. And it, it is hard to like get to that because she is also like very scatterbrained and she's also very like, let's say broadly rebellious, like just about anything that could remotely yeah. stand as an authority figure, which kind of includes the inquisition many times, which yeah. can put you at odds with her as a character frequently. Um, but the other thing I really like about her character specifically from my playthrough is that she is an elf that gets mad if you assume that she has like dalish origins or anything like that or that she would believe in dalish things she's very much like i am a city elf i was not raised that way i was raised apart from the dalish i don't care about the dalish like she sees elven life as very different from just those roots and sees as more of like what the world is today and what she's been raised in um and doesn't want to necessarily just be defined by being an elf and I find that like really interesting because it's this great contrast to Solus, who's very much like 
the the ways of the Dalish and the old gods and the ancient history and all that. And they're just totally butting heads about it all the time. And mm-hmm. with my inquisitor being an elf and kind of being in the middle between those two viewpoints already, like it's created this really good contrast. And I just, it's made for a very interesting setting for my inquisitor to be in and, and like right. cool storytelling place to explore. So I like that a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, to touch on what we were talking about earlier, like, I also had a similar thing like you had with, or I don't know if it was entirely similar in terms of like the way that it kind of shifted my perspective, but um, I, at some point before I met Dorian, flirted with Cullen in this game. And mm-hmm. kind of like knowing that it wasn't going to go anywhere because like, I knew the way that the romances worked out in this game beforehand. Um, but this was one of Dragon Age's first, uh, I mean, I guess it was, it really was Dragon Age specifically's first um, way of like, portraying different like the spectrum of sexuality in ways that uh the series hadn't done before because like dragon age 2 everybody's by everything's mm-hmm. fair, fair game origins had you know very bioware old way of going about it. like either you could romance somebody or you literally could not speak to them in that context at all mm-hmm. um we're here it was finally like and i mean even mass effect 3 had you know had more of the spectrum going on as well but it didn't have those moments where with the exception of like trainer it didn't have those moments where like you could flirt with somebody and then get turned down and mm-hmm. this was like as far as i know um ex- with the exception of uh the solace romance um anytime you have any option you have to flirt with somebody in this game is afforded to you regardless of your character's uh race and gender and yeah i could be flirting with cassandra if i wanted to yeah and um you know, characters will just react accordingly, depending on... Like, I know that Cassandra specifically has, like, a a, a cutscene where if you flirted with her enough as a female character, she will literally take you aside and be like, hey, not about that. Like, not like not even, like, a definitive um rejection line after you say it. Like, there's, like, a whole special cutscene that you get in that scenario where you flirted with her as a woman. She's just like, sorry, but I don't swing that way. Um... And Andromeda kind of picked up on this as well. And I feel like it's where Bioware, like between the two games, Bioware's finally kind of figured out how to mm-hmm. have these romances on the spectrum and like be willing to say no to the players and not give them whoever they want. Because um, I mean, like, oh, actually, I don't know if I can flirt with Black Walls, man. I don't think I've ever had the opportunity. But um, I've kind of like flirted with everybody just because I'm casting a wide net, knowing where I'm going to go. But like, just as one of, you know, the pillars of my character is that he's a hoe until he's not. And <laughs> Cullen was one of those points where, like, he... He, uh, you know, I, I, I made a, you know, a, a, I picked a flirting option, and then he's like, oh, that's what you meant. And then kind of, like, awkwardly shuffles away. And then you go back later, and then you try it again, and he's just kind of like, I'm, I don't think I can reciprocate what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And it's cool. Like, I just... I like that there is that sort of, um... That they've evolved to the point where they can show that particular interaction and not just be like, oh, we're not going to allow anyone to flirt with anybody that they're compatible with. And, I mean, I think even then, like, the, the characters, the way that they have certain romances and stuff like that end up telling you so much about who those characters are as well. Like, the one I think of specifically is that Solus will only romance a female mm-hmm. elf. And, like, 
that is extremely fitting with his character and like we will yeah. get more into because at this point we have not talked to Solus much i feel like it's probably worth talking more about Solus in maybe like two episodes from now yeah. um but at this point he's kind of just this mage that's hanging around and knows fade stuff and that's really about it and he's being very intentionally mysterious and enigmatic and all that whereas Varric kind of very comfortably slides into that Varric role of being like hey you know how's yeah. it go although man he's got we'll talk about this a little bit later but he's got a little bit of like he seems world weary in a way that he was not yeah. in Dragon Age 2 um, and I'm excited to explore some of that in his companion quest and all that and Cassandra's Cassandra I mean we'll, we'll talk a bunch about her but she's very like you know faith based and aggressive mm -hmm. but also like paladin style character like very lawful good and all that which is why she um, doesn't like me <laughs> but uh yeah i mean it, it it fits all these characters so well and then the fact that you can just kind of move around in that space like right now my inquisitor has been flirting with both solace and sarah and has flirted with Vivienne a few times as well, which has been mm -hmm. interesting because Vivienne res responds like very interestingly to your advances and stuff like that. Um, so Vivienne is our last character that we pick up here. Um, the first enchanter of, I'm going to butcher this name, Montsimard? I don't know. It's tried. Close I enough. Yeah. Um, and we get introduced to her through this cutscene where we're we're talking to all these different orlesian um God, i don't even know what you call them like just Nobility. not like they are nobles but like you quickly get the sense that they are all like very removed from the actual positions of power and they're just kind of like court attendees i guess you would mm -hmm. say i always find that like baffled that there was like a day and age in like humanity where somebody would just kind of go and gossip all day and that's like what they did and yeah. they were can you imagine ken <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine being that rich i can't <laughs> um <laughs> uh but there's there's a marquee that begins like accosting the inquisitor and, and like is basically like challenging you to a duel and right as he's about to like pull out his iron uh he freezes up and Vivienne like comes walking down in this total like strut down the stairs like it's time for my entrance and all that <laughs> and and she's basically like look uh I know why you're here you were like you've shamed your family you're trying to like cover face and all that kind of stuff you think if you beat the inquisitor in a duel that your family will give a shit about you again and then she like turns to you and she's basically like hey uh what do you want me to do with him and you can tell him you can tell her to kill him and or, or just be like let him go or whatever i said let him go i don't know what you chose i just said i didn't care oh okay um imagine he gets away either way right yeah i don't does she kill him if you i tell don't her know to? i actually don't that know i'm gonna try that pretty cold but hey you mm. know <laughs> um so then we we get into a private conversation with her we kind of learn what she's about um and one of the big things about vivienne that i think is like really fascinating playing this this time around i didn't really pick up on much the first time around because i didn't, honestly did not spend a lot of time with vivienne the first time i played this game mm. uh just because i was 
I was a mage and Dorian's a mage and Solus is a mage. So like Vivienne was kind of always lowest on the list of people who I was bringing along to different events and right. stuff like that. I, I tended to team with Dorian the most, I think. Because mm. I like Dorian a lot. I know you like Dorian the most. I'm not going to contest you for that. <laughs> but I also like Dorian a lot as a character. Um, yeah. So... Uh, but the fact that I'm now not playing a mage and kind of moving more mage characters into my rotation, uh, Vivian's really fascinating because she's a circle mage that supports the circle. Yeah. She's, she likes the idea of the circle and the chantry and maybe not necessarily the Templar, but she doesn't hate the Templar in the way that most other mages do. Um, right. She's a really interesting character. Like, yeah, I'm always like, questioning whether she's playing, like, a political game or whether she's genuinely, like, that's what she feels. Like, I'm always double-thinking what she thinks. But she's also got right. this, like, air of confidence about it. There's, like, one particular moment uh, later on in the game where after this big thing has happened where she's like, so everything went to shit. How do you feel? <laughs> and um, <laughs> you can basically, like, there are so many different options, but my response is basically, like, I'm pissed and she's like good hold that anger when everything else in battle fails you anger will give you the edge you need to survive that like (laughs) feed that and stuff like that i'm like oh my god vivian rules (laughs) like awesome uh she's just a really fascinating character yeah she is like if you don't we talked a lot about uh in dragon age 2 where like People's dislike of Anders usually resulted in that game in a certain way. And I have trouble with Vivian and Cassandra specifically because they are characters who are like diametrically opposed to who my character is and that means that like getting their approval to like to the point where like they'll even kindly speak to me is an uphill battle and that frustration I have with their ideologies and, like, the way that they are constantly at odds with my character never extends to, like, actual vitriol on my point. So, like, not that there's a real point in this game where you can kill Cassandra or Vivian, but it's, like, there's a point where, like, somebody's belief systems in these games is equated with desire to not have them around. And mm. I never reach that point without these characters, and I think... I also don't know that I ever really hit the point with Vivian specifically where I necessarily even see her point of view. Like, it it feels very self-defeating in the way that it is portrayed. And, like, it's one of those things where, like, I have trouble even articulating the ways I want to argue against her just because, like, the as a, as a character who is a mage who has existed in this universe in all three games as a mage, what she says feels so antithetical to my ideals as a person who thinks that mages should be fucking free to live whatever lives they want. Like, her sort of rationality doesn't really matter to me in the grand scheme of things. It's more just, like, the principle of what she's saying that ultimately um, imprisoning mages in whatever form that takes is just where I'm like, I will never see eye to eye with you. It's amazing to me that we somehow, in the end of this game, get to a point where we're even friendly with each other. Um... And that way, like, she is, like, a very fascinating, well-realized character, but man, she is, like, probably more so than most Dragon Age characters. She is, like, 
hard for me to interact with and not get fucking livid. Mm. I I find that like one of the interesting things for me, like when I was talking to her in this initial recruitment, was that I I, I do kind of ask her like what benefit i think it was something like what benefit does the circle provide or anything like that she mentions like the idea that you have a lot of these mages who discover their powers and have no idea what they're doing and could so easily like court a demon or something like Mm -hmm. that without any level of mentorship or anything like that so having a circle in some way allows them to like foster learning in a safer environment and like create an institution like like basically you know making a hogwarts you know like that's right. kind of i feel like that's how vivian at least when i'm first talking to her here i i, I don't remember enough about her loyalty missions or stuff or anything to, to see how that develops later but um like at, at the outset here it was very much like a why don't we build hogwarts and to me i was sitting there like hey yeah that make that kind of makes sense it's it's when yeah. the we reincorporate the the Templar and the Chantry right. rule and stuff like that, that it then becomes this situation where it's like, oh, but that... So I find her... I, I do agree that I find some of her beliefs like challenging, but I also think that just makes her this character that is always forcing me to question whether I'm... Question, like, what kind of nuance there is to this discussion and, like... I feel like one thing that Inquisition does very well, especially once we introduce our last two characters, is just give you like so many different ways that you can look at whatever situation is happening to the Inquisition through mm. the people that it puts in your party. Like you have a Ben Hosrith agent. Like, like compare even just previous games party members to Inquisition, right? Like Sten was the walking Sten cut out versus like iron bull who's this charismatic like spy and all that like cassandra even like i like aveline a lot i think aveline's an interesting character but cassandra being an agent of the chantry and that embedded and also like suddenly having to question what she is and Mm -hmm. what she believes and all that like i feel like the characters in this game go through much more radical shifts and then also like affect your viewpoint of different situations because of that and i think vivian's a really good embodiment of that that hey here's this character that you may completely disagree with and she may completely disagree with you and you're just teaming up because like that's what humanity has to do at this point to survive but um you might like learn a little bit about yourself whether that's just like giving you a more thorough understanding of what you believe or like learning a little bit more about why your beliefs could shift like mm-hmm. I, I think that's interesting yeah um, and I think it's just like especially when you compare characters like Sten and Iron Boy I think I mean we've kind of like talked around this a little bit like Inquisition really feels like the Dragon Age universe figuring itself out like in a mm-hmm. more holistic way than it ever has because and, you know a lot of that comes back to like Origins was not supposed to be a, a franchise so they were able to kind of get away with, like, the bare minimum of exposition on some of these things. Because, like, you know, they didn't write Sten with the intent on ever going to anywhere that, like, uh, where the fuck does the Kuhn live? Um, and, you know, like, the very, like, mustache-twirling, uh, awful fucking whatever they portrayed to the Venture Imperium as, that there was never an intention to kind of ever expand beyond that. And so, like, when you have Dorian, who's like, hey, maybe the place isn't just, like, this fucking 
hell on earth that is run by people that are routinely making blood sacrifices. And I think that is just kind of a general Inquisition theme. Like, the world is changing. Like, mm-hmm. in almost every single quest in this game. And it's finally kind of, like, time to assert your presence here instead of kind of just, like, passing through like we did in the first two games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just... The more I think about it, the more I'm just, like, this cast just as a whole like i love dragon age 2's cast because i feel like it suits that story very well but the ways in which like dragon age 2's cast feels like it suits hawk whereas like dragon age inquisition's cast feels like a representation of everything that exists in thetis like all these different beliefs all these different characters from all these different backgrounds like you really get this holistic understanding of where thetis is at the time through like through their eyes and through their experiences and i think that's maybe like why this game still has sticking power for me because it's interesting i've talked to people in the years since this game has come out and i feel like the love for it has cooled over time like i feel there were a lot of people who were really hot on it like back in the day and there's certainly people who still love it now and we'll be having them on as guests and all that but um i've found a lot of people who really have kind of changed the way they think about this game over time or or maybe they've just like they aren't as fervent about it um as as other games and like i understand the mass effect trilogy is kind of this monolithic entity in rpgs that can kind of stand on its own and inquisition doesn't have that benefit there but this still like even playing it today feels like a really incredible rpg like of this generation like if i'm if i'm thinking of the major rpgs of this generation like you think of like persona 5 and witcher 3 and then i think this one is like up there with them in terms of just like what they did and what they accomplished Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. it's not always clean it's, I'm not saying it's perfect but right. um, and god knows we'll pick it apart <laughs> for sure and I think a lot of it is like when we get the, like the further distance we get from things we kind of remember like the broad strokes a bit more so than we do mm-hmm. the minutiae and like that is one of the benefits of Normandy FM like because it, the show that we do we are very much in the minutiae at all times um, so I think like you know a lot of it does get uh, kind of relegated to the hinterlands and the, well, we already said the Corypheus is the villain of this game. Um, the Corypheus is kind of... We, we said all, it last like, season too, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, like, like Corypheus is like maybe on a surface level not that interesting of a villain, I think, in terms of his ramifications for the lore, he is more interesting, but like as a person, maybe less so. You know, like, yeah. and when you're working with the broad strokes of things, that's, like, the things that I think this game does well, where, I, like I'm saying, like, if you're playing along with us, maybe just try and critical path it. Like, I think it is, you know, the beginning of, like, probably... Like, I would argue it's probably the beginning of Bioware's current identity crisis, but I think the guts of what's here is one of Bioware's probably best stories, I think. And if you, maybe if you put a gun in my head, maybe I would say it's the best. Um, and just, like, a really strong understanding of this universe in a way that I don't think the series has had at this point. And that comes along with like the characters that we talked about and like how they are able to encapsulate all these different angles of this universe. There's really not anything like it 
in Bioware's catalog, I don't think. And I think when it has it came out of the, like the, you know the very beginning of the generation, and we have seen since uh, a lot of open world games like The Witcher that we like somehow you know five years removed is still basically just as loved as it ever was. Um, I think when we get that from maybe systems that are in place that have been iterated upon and have gotten better and implemented I think a lot of the open world bullshit in maybe more meaningful ways. You know, like like the broad strokes of the things that the game doesn't do necessarily as well are the things that people remember, which I don't think is fair, but I think it's just kind of the way the human, like, human mind works. You kind of forget nuance and, you know, smaller specifics over time. So maybe everyone should play Dragon Age Inquisition again in 2020. I think the important thing to note there before we kind of wrap up is that I, I mentioned The Witcher a lot, and The Witcher is, like, one of my favorite RPGs of this generation, but I don't, I don't know that that game reached that level until all the dlcs were out especially like once blood and wine came out and people like played that that like if i'm being honest with myself like blood and wine is the citadel of wild hunt where it just Mm. feels like it's this ultimate culmination of everything but like imagine if citadel you just like crank that knob up to 11 and then also like added i say this lovingly about citadel but like imagine that the other story that was tacked on to citadel like had more to it than what citadel had uh because as much as i like the story of clone commander shepherd and all that and the way it was presented it felt very like action episode of the week versus like what the witcher does which is an extremely good adaptation of like several different pieces of witcher lore into this new thing that was just frankly really really cool i'm gonna make you play the witcher one day (laughs) um no for my dead body but i feel like a lot of people did not play trespasser and those that did are the ones who still really like care about inquisition and stuff because they know Mm kind of like like trespasser is god i mm, I need to play it again before I make a truly definitive statement about it. But when I think about like the impact that any various Bioware DLC has had on its mm. series, like Trespasser definitely to me feels like it has one of the largest impacts on the series of any DLC alongside maybe like Lair of the Shadow Broker, but not like Trespasser literally is the setup for a future game to the point that it basically ends with this big signpost saying this is what we're doing next <laughs> like no. this is we're we're capping off the big twist ending of inquisition and like we're signposting what's next and we're making changes permanent no. changes to characters and stuff like that it's man oh what it's, a dlc mm, what yeah. a dlc <laughs> what a dlc can't wait to get there uh, we will eventually get there, but for now, we, God, can we almost went as long as the Q and A episode? Um, we do need to wrap this up for the week. Next week, we will be recruiting the mages and/or the Templars. Uh, Ken will be handling the recruitment of the mages. I will be going down the Templar route. We'll also be meeting our last two companion characters, which will be Dorian for Ken and Cole for myself. And then, obviously, we will each get our opposite respective character. Uh, the following week when we get to the uh, thing that happens at Haven. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but 
beyond that uh i mean thank you so much to everyone who tunes in every week uh we are normandy fm we have a patreon patreon.com slash normandy fm where we are always taking in donations to keep the lights on and help us keep going here on what we're doing those who do back at a certain level get their names shouted out every week and that list this week is kevin kulikowski chris johns alice hawk colin just colin just reds just and Zach Nickel, thank you all so much for, for contributing. And if you don't have the cash to contribute right now, be sure you head over to twitter.com slash show where you can follow us there. And you can also find us on Spotify and various other podcast services as Normandy FM, where we publish the show every Wednesday. Um, next week, we will be recruiting some mages and some Templars. It will not probably go this long. Knock on wood. Who knows? We're in inquisition we are in haven we are building up the forces and we are finally here in the last bit of dragon age i'm thrilled i can't wait to see y'all next time on normandy fm well before we close it up what no do not ken do not one more thing me well when uh, whenever it was we were talking about i put out a poll on twitter that asked uh did anyone here actually play dragon age inquisition multiplayer asking for a friend at normandy fm show uh uh, and like the however long it's been, I got thirty four votes. Zero percent played consistently. Twenty nine percent played once. Thirty five percent never played it. Thirty six percent forgot it existed until right now. Maybe maybe we should have a very special episode where we play some multiplayer if the servers are still online and see what that thing is. Uh, cause man, that's a weird thing. We'll tell you next time on Normandy. We have watched and waited 